When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. Thank you for joining me today for Scripture Study. I am so grateful for the chance that we have to spend time in such sacred words. And I've been praying for you. I know you pray for me, and I'm so grateful. But today especially, I've been praying for you that what we talk about will be a specific blessing in very specific ways for many of you. Uh, as you ponder where you are on the covenant path and how close or far you feel from the Savior. I do hope that what we talk about today will be a blessing because it's the Last Supper. Uh, we are getting so close to the end of our New Testament study. Uh, after today, we have next week with what I call the Sermon After Supper. Uh, it's John's farewell discourse, or well, Jesus's farewell discourse in the book of John. Uh, the week following, we'll then study Gethsemane. And the week after that, Calvary. And the week after that, the empty tomb. So we do not have much more time before the Savior leaves us and leaves us in good hands in the hands of the apostles as we study the book of Acts. But that does place us in, in real sacred time. Uh, as we've been studying these past few weeks, we have been in the Holy Week. And it began on Sunday, Palm Sunday, with the triumphal entry. Uh, Monday then came with Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, Tuesday then came. We spent a lot of time on Tuesday uh, last week. And the week before, uh, as we studied these discourses, the teachings, the parables, so much that Jesus explained uh, in the temple, as well as on the Mount of Olives, that Olivet Discourse. I hope that you were able to spend as much time as possible last week. I know it was a long lesson. These all have been. Uh, but the, the discourse Jesus gives about the signs of the times is absolutely essential, since for him it's prophecy, for us it's current events. And here we are living at these, these times of fulfillment, especially our discussion of, of deception, of the, of, of the very elect according to the covenant. That does seem to be the defining sign of the times in our day. And, and I really did hope that you found some relevance in last week's discussion. If you didn't have a chance to finish it, feel free to go back and, and, and see what you missed. But that does hopefully put us in a place where we're ready for today. Because today we'll be studying the Last Supper. Now, it's Thursday. And that's odd because just last week we were studying Tuesday. What happened on Wednesday? Good question. And we don't really know. The gospel writers didn't care too much about making a very clear chronology. They didn't worry about being so specific in, in terms of, of those things. But most likely on Wednesday, since we don't have a clear record of what took place that day, it's likely that that's the day that, that Judas went uh, to the chief priests and, and elders and began to arrange for the betrayal that would happen on Thursday night. Uh, it's likely that Wednesday, that's the beautiful thing, it's likely that on Wednesday Jesus just decided to lay low. That this may have been a day of personal preparation. He knows far better than any of the apostles what lies ahead on Thursday and Friday. And I can imagine 
if you knew what you were about to endure, to take a day of rest, almost a Sabbath of sorts in the midweek, to prepare for what he would have to accomplish, what he'd have to go through. I'm, I'm grateful. In some ways, I just want to leave Jesus alone. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, can, can you just leave me be for a while? I'm trying to process. I'm trying to cope. I'm trying to prepare. I'm trying to steel my nerves and stiffen my spine because I have a baptism to be baptized with and oh, how I am straightened till it be accomplished. To understand what Jesus is facing, you take all the time you need. If you need a Wednesday off, maybe we need to take a few Wednesdays off ourselves so that we're better prepared and more determined to move forward in faith when our Thursdays and Fridays come. Now, for this one, Start. We're going to start. We're going to be all over the place. We're going to need lots of fingers as bookmarks in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, flipping pages back and forth. We're going to start in Matthew 26, though. And it will take us a couple weeks to get through Matthew 26. We're going to be only focused on the Last Summer Supper portion of it today. But here, 26, right on the heels of 25, Jesus has finished the Olivet Discourse. He just taught those three great parables of preparation. Uh, the ten virgins, the talents, the sheep and goats. And then 26 begins in verse 1 and 2. It came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So he's still probably there on the Mount of Olives. It's still probably Tuesday night. It's getting late. He said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. So if this is Tuesday night, two more days, that's Wednesday, Thursday. Thursday would be the Passover meal, according to Matthew's version. Now, Mark's version is even more complete here. It says the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. Those feasts, unleavened bread and Passover, all, are all one and the same. But I do love that Mark adds the detail. Matthew wouldn't need to because his audience is Jewish. So they would have completely known already that the feast of Passover also includes the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, but to think about what Mark's audience, what he's trying to help them understand, this Passover meal, this unleavened bread, this will be a time where the lamb is slain. It'll be a time where bread that does not rise is partaken of. Think about Jesus being the first. He is the lamb without blemish that will be slain for the sins of the world. But he's going to change the second. He is not unleavened bread. He is fully leavened bread. And it is the leaven of life. He will rise on the third day. But as Matthew finishes this statement, after two days will be the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Jesus is being as clear as he possibly can be. He knows precisely what lies ahead. He's been telling them this repeatedly, uh, especially since the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been very clear. We're heading to Jerusalem, and this is what lies ahead of me. Betrayal? Death and rising again. Here now, we are talking days away. After two days will be the Passover, and then I'll be betrayed to be crucified. 
Now in verse 3, we, the camera shifts and sees what's happening on the other side of things, the other side of the cross, those who are planning betrayal, those who are planning and plotting crucifixion. Verse 3, Then assembled together the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders of the people, unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. We'll see more of Caiaphas later on. But think about this cabal, this group, and who it is that is hatching this plot against Jesus. Everyone here seems to be important, a person in authority. You've got the high priest together with the chief priests. You've got the scribes, these so-called lawyers, these experts in the law. You have the elders of the people, and they all come together in this palace. This is a meeting of the minds. And what are they trying to figure out? It says they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. Ooh, subtlety. The Mark version says by craft. And the Greek word there suggests stealth and deceit and treachery. We have to plot some kind of plan to catch Jesus, to kill him. That's the ultimate goal. We've got to get rid of this guy. We saw this often in the book of John where Jesus was so clear and called them out for it. Why are you trying to kill me? The people are starting to sense that that's the case. Like, hey, isn't this the guy that they're trying to kill? Uh, It's becoming more and more obvious to people that this, this story is not going to end well for Jesus. And here we see the behind the scenes, this, this plotting his death. But notice what they say. They said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. And that word for uproar, other translations call it a riot. And that really is what they feared. You see, this is a feast day. This is a festival. In fact, it's a pilgrimage feast. Passover is the big one. And so you have Jews from across the diaspora, throughout the Roman Empire, coming into the city. We're going to find a massive increase in the population of Jerusalem. People from all over the place comparing notes and really leaning in to their Jewish identity. Think about it. Passover celebrates the deliverance from bondage. And though they're thinking Egyptian bondage, they're feeling Roman bondage in the moment. And to think as they're celebrating freedom, I mean, this is 4th of July in some ways for, for, for Americans. And to think about how concerned uh, you would be if you're a Roman soldier and it's, fourth of, it's, it's Jewish 4th of July. It is time to celebrate deliverance from bondage and people from all over are here. Celebrate. I mean, they're, they're scattered across the Mount of Olives, camping out at night. They, all, we've got a tinderbox here and all we're waiting for is a spark. And if that spark ignites something, we've got a riot on our hands. The Antonia Fortress uh, was built right there on the Temple Mount, looking down across that sacred space for just such a time as this, that if something were to happen, the Roman legions can come swarming down and, and put to rest whatever riots might be in the making. The irony, though, here, it's not, it's not the Roman leadership that's worried about the riot. It's the Jewish leadership that is. Whose side are you on? In some ways, they're on the Roman side, as much as they hate Rome. Because though Rome is in real power, on the ground, kind of street, local level, these chief priests, the high priests, the elders, they do exercise some measure of authority. And they want to hold on to it. They do not want Jesus coming around with 
It's kind of stoking these messianic hopes. Now, again, Jesus has been very clear. Remember Bread of Life discourse? I'm not that kind of Messiah. I'm not a military deliverer. I'm here to free you from sin, not from Rome. But this concern on the Jewish leadership's part, this would be Messiah. If the people are expecting him to be some kind of political ruler, then the Romans will not only quash that rebellion, they will take from us the measure of authority that we've kind of gotten used to and like. Remember, those that have any degree of authority, as they suppose, usually begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. That's Doctrine and Covenants 121. And these chief priests, these elders, the high priest Caiaphas himself, are good examples, well, bad examples of that. Uh, they want to hold on. They stand the most to lose politically and socially if, A, people follow Jesus, or B, some kind of riot erupts, in which case Rome will, will squash everything, including them. So what are they going to do? We have to get around the people. There's such an irony that the people are scared to death of them. Remember being afraid of being put out of the secular synagogue? But flip it around. The leaders are scared to death of the people too. So interesting that both sides fear one another. Whereas Jesus didn't fear anyone and walked forward with faith. Now it's there that we shift gears though. And the, the, the spotlight moves, and we see in the midst of people plotting his death uh, in, the, in, the back, in the back rooms, we now come into a room in a house in Bethany and see an incredible moment of someone else who's also preparing for the death of Jesus, but in the most consecrated of ways. The next story we see in the book of Matthew is that of Mary anointing Jesus. And in some ways to couple this, we'll see her wash his feet, anoint them with oil, we should say, making her the female equivalent of Jesus when he washes the apostles' feet just later in today's lesson. Uh, to see these stories so close at hand, Oh, it's, it's beautiful to watch what Mary does here. Now, we're going to start with Matthew because that's where we've been studying so far. But we're going to quickly jump to Luke, excuse me, to John, because John's version of this is more powerful. But notice the transition from verses 3 through 5, the high priests and chief priests and all these wicked people plotting Jesus' death, to verse 6 and 7, Mary trying to help Jesus prepare for it. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman, having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Now, the irony here is the woman takes center stage, but she's not named in Matthew. We'll see who it is in a moment when we shift back to John. But who is named is the owner of the home, Simon the leper. Now, who on earth is that? Now, earlier in the book of Luke, and Luke was the only one that mentioned this, there was a story about this, well, remember, it's the three-end sinner, according to the old typo. Uh, this woman who came in behind Jesus as he was sitting at meat uh, at dinner in the home of whom? Simon the Pharisee. Well, there's a social lep a leper, according to some people. But some people then, because this woman comes and anoints Jesus, 
his feet with oil and washes those feet with her hair. And we'll see this woman here do the same thing. A lot of people have conflated those two stories and say, oh, it must be the same thing because there's so many parallels. Uh, what the woman does, the, the name of the person who's in charge of the, of the meal, Simon in both cases. But again, that happened earlier in the Savior's ministry. And what's to say, who's to say that that can't happen more than once? Okay. So I, I would prefer to keep those separate and allow Luke to honor that wonderful woman whom Jesus forgave uh, and to leave Simon the Pharisee separate from Simon the leper here. Now the fact that it's in Bethany should tell us something too. Because whenever Jesus was in Bethany, he always stays at the home of Martha. Remember how clear it was? It's always Martha described. It's her home. No wonder she takes uh, so seriously the importance of acting as hostess. Well, but here, House of Simon the leper, well, maybe it's the same location, which makes it possible that, I mean, was Simon the leper the, the father of Martha and Mary and Lazarus? And knowing the personalities of his children, he left his home as he was, he, when he knew he would die, probably of the leprosy for which he was so well known, uh, perhaps he left, I mean, out of the ordinary, but left the home to Martha. She'll take good care of it. <laughs> Believe me, she's always cumbered about much serving. It, the, the home will, will be well run. On the other hand, was Simon the leper Martha's husband? We don't see any record of, of a husband for Martha. And yet for her to have a home, was it her husband's home? And did he die of leprosy and leave the home in her hands? No wonder she's so concerned about Lazarus being sick if she's already lost a loved one. Then again, some scholars suggest maybe Simon is another name for Lazarus himself. And some people refer to it as Martha's home, and other people more traditionally refer to it as Lazarus's home, or in this case, by another name, Simon's home. Did Lazarus die of leprosy before Jesus was able to raise him? Uh, the fact that Lazarus, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, in that same name, and if they won't trust Moses, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't change even if someone ra was raised from the dead. Remember that? Uh, the description of that poor beggar who had these sores that the dogs would come and lick, that sounds like leprosy too. So some interesting possibilities here. In some ways, the details don't totally matter. But here we are in Bethany waiting for an incredible story to unfold. We're to see it best unfold, we've got to go to John, though. And we get some detail here about the identity of this woman that Matthew mentions. But the chronology is off. Uh, or at least I should say it's different. We don't know who was right in their recollections of when exactly all these things took place. I don't know about you, I remember on my mission having, having so many things happen in the same day. I mean, that's like a week's worth of experience packed into 24 hours. By the end of the night, I'd look back and go, okay, I'd write my journal, and I'd think back, okay, what, what, did I, what happened today? And I'd think back to something, and I'd, I'd have to pull out my daily planner. And I'd look at morning appointments like, that was today? I felt like three days ago. So I can't blame the apostles, uh, or excuse me, the, the gospel writers, uh, since it's decades after the fact that they're writing. I can't blame them for being a little fuzzy in their memories on the chronology of things. I trust them implicitly on the details. Those things are typically just emblazoned in the mind. 
Yeah, but to think of, did, did this happen first or did that before that? And when would it, was it that day or the next? I don't really remember. So in the Matthew version of this, we are seeing this happen either Tuesday night really late if Jesus is coming back to Bethany after his Olivet Discourse. Or perhaps this is happening on, on Wednesday. Part of me thinks that would be a beautiful, this would be a beautiful experience as one of the few things that happens on Wednesday as Jesus prepares himself. Because you see Mary here trying to help Jesus prepare. A beautiful Wednesday possibility. But in the John version, if you turn to chapter 12, okay, John chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it situates it a little bit earlier in the week. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, just in case anyone could have possibly forgotten that incredible miracle. Okay? Now there they made him a supper, and who's they? I mean, is, is Mary actually helping this time? <laughs> and Martha served, oh, okay, I guess not. Well, maybe she helped at the beginning, and then as soon as Jesus came, she shifted, right? That sounds more like, like Mary. And Martha serving, yeah, that sounds more like her. Taking charge, as always, running the show. But Lazarus was one of them which sat at the table with them. And so glad that he was able to come for dinner, too. Here you see a beloved disciple. Remember how Martha referred to him? Him whom thou lovest is sick. Well, that beloved disciple is among other beloved apostles, including one, John, who refers to himself in those ways as well. Now, it's here that we're going to see Mary anoint Jesus. But the detail we saw in verse 1 there is that this was six days before the Passover. And if Passover is on Friday in the book of John, Passover is on Thursday in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, for them, he's having the Passover meal on Thursday, and then he's crucified on Friday. John places the Passover meal on Friday because there's just this beautiful parallelism in his mind that if Christ is being crucified on Friday, and at that same time, Passover meals are taking place around Jerusalem, then the lamb without blemish is being slain simultaneously. Those literal lambs in all of those Passover meals and the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, being slain at the same time. Theologically, I love what John is doing there, placing the crucifixion during the Passover. But if that's the case and it's Friday, then six days before Passover would be the previous Saturday, which places this the day before the triumphal entry. In, in this chronology, uh, he would have come, gone through Jericho, met Zacchaeus, stayed there, climbed up the mountains to Jerusalem, come over the top, gotten to Bethany on the other side, and, and stayed the night there in, in the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus and Simon the leper and, and whoever lived there. Now, if that's sat, uh, Saturday, beautiful preparation for the triumphal entry on Sunday. And so I, I'm totally fine with, with John's chronology and his memory of the, of the events. But I also do love the, the, the placement in the Synoptic Gospels of that sacred, silent Wednesday, right before the day of the, of the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, whenever specifically it took place, notice what took place. Verse 3, Then took Mary, so now we know the identity of this woman who had come, Then took Mary, 
Mary the contemplative, Mary the mindful, Mary the worshipful, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Can you picture that detail sticking in John's mind? Just a pound's worth? And, and, wow, just filling the, the house, filling his nostrils, filling his memory. Smells do something. Smells seem to, to trigger memories. Have you ever just walked by something and it's a flower that you smelled in some how trip that you were on and it just takes you back? I can smell certain perfumes and remember that though that was the first perfume that my wife was wearing when I first met her. Smells trigger things. And it's triggering something for John so many years after the fact. That odor just filled everything. And it must have filled Jesus' heart as well. Because what Mary is doing here, in all of her contemplative, worshipful focus on Jesus, she's saying something here. She's doing something here. Now notice she wiped his feet with her hair. In the Matthew version, the focus was on the head. She anoints his head with oil. Here in John, the focus is on the feet. Just like it will be John, John alone, that has Jesus washing the apostles' feet. He really does seem to be trying to put these two stories together in some kind of parallel form. Now John comments on how valuable this offering was. A pound of spikenard, very costly. We already saw the detail in Matthew 26, verse 7. I'll reread it. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment. So very precious, very costly. But notice Matthew's detail. It's in an alabaster box, which would mean the box itself is costly, not just its contents. I mean, this is an incredible gift. I don't know where Mary got it. I don't know what she's been, been holding on to it for or waiting for it to use. Because notice the detail Mark supplies. In Mark 14.3, it says that she had to break the box to get to the spikener, the ointment, that she could then use to anoint Jesus' head and feet. Break the box? Alabaster? Stone? Wow. Makes you wonder. Well, I'll put it this way. Do you remember old school piggy banks? The ones that didn't have the little plastic thing in the bottom that you could open up and take money out prematurely? The, the, the genius behind a piggy bank was there was only one opening and it was a tiny little slit in the top that you put your coins in. And then the piggy bank, this alabaster box, contains things that you are not supposed to use for no reason. That's why the, that little plug in the bottom defeats the purpose of a piggy bank. It's easily removed, whereas the real piggy bank would have to be broken. And that would, that would give you pause. This thing that I'm tempted to buy, to spend my money on, is it really worth not only the money, but breaking the bank? Have you heard that phrase before? That's where it comes from. Think about it. 
you're going to break the bank, wow, you're getting, this is worth everything that, I'm, that I've been saving for. And once I break the bank, I'll, I'll have no bank beyond this. I won't need one. Everything I've been saving is, will be used on this thing that I'm about to purchase. And I consider it totally worth it. That's the case with Martha here. She must have been saving this pound of spike nerd for a, an incredibly special occasion. Some sacred purpose. Well, when better, what, could there be a better time to use it than now? If Jesus has been clearer and clearer about what lies ahead, if this is either the Saturday before the triumphal entry, coming into Jerusalem for the final time, or if this is the Wednesday of sacred silence, I've got to use it now. Break the bank. Break the box. And supply the ointment. One last detail here that I, that I want to pause on. And I've mentioned this last year when we studied the Old Testament. And we studied the whole Old Testament, including Song of Solomon. So-called biblical trash, as it's been dubbed. Now, uninspired writing. Yeah, that may be true, but there are at least a few details there worth, worth holding on to. And one of them is in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 12. Think about this passage in light of what Mary has just done. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. How's that for the house being filled with the odor of the ointment? How's that for Mary? This incredible disciple recognizing Jesus as the king sitting at his table. No better time to, to fill the house with this magnificent odor than now. Now, as, as beautiful a moment as this is, not everybody feels that way. And in verse 4 through 6, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Think about how clear John is trying to make this. All eyes on Judas here. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. And again, there's John passing judgment after the fact. At the time, he has no idea what Judas is really plotting and having in mind here. But notice what, what is on Judas' mind. And does it, sound, does it sound nefarious? Does it sound underhanded? No, in some ways, it sounds like Judas is remembering the experience with the rich young ruler who had so much and was told by Jesus, sell it and give it to the poor so that you can fully follow me. It's interesting to me to juxtapose in my mind the story of the rich young ruler with Mary here because they do point in different directions. And like proving contraries always does, you have to be clear enough and, and guided by the Spirit to know, do I do A or do I do B? Because both possibilities are things that Jesus would probably applaud when done in the right moment. Okay, There are times I need to go A and times I need to do B. The rich young ruler needed to sell all that he had, including any pounds of spikenard and any alabaster boxes he'd been saving up. 
But in this case, for Mary, was she meant to do what the rich young ruler was supposed to do? I think sometimes we put ourselves in, in, in bad places because we see good things other people have done, or not done but should have done, and assume that's what discipleship looks like. And it's a one-size-fits-all, and that's the only version that is acceptable in the eyes of God. And that's not the case. Mary was not the rich young ruler. She was not told to, to sell all she had and give to the poor. But in this case, what is she trying to accomplish? Something far different, but far better, at least in her mind, than anything she could have done with that spike nerd, other than give it all to Jesus in this incredible moment. Now, again, John was pretty strong that this is Judas here. He's the one, and, he's the, and this is the reason why, and, and of course it would be him that's, that's worried about this. But Judas was not the only one thinking this. Maybe all of them are still a little stung by the, or shocked by the experience with the rich, rich young ruler. Jesus is that serious? Camels and eyes of needles? Whoa, we better give up everything. Then why isn't Mary doing that? You see, in the JST of the Mark account, this is chapter 14, verse 4, it says there were some among the disciples who had indignation within themselves. So it's, it's more than Judas alone. And they're all kind of bringing up this idea. Why didn't she sell it and give the money to the poor? And depending on how, how much uh, Judas knows his, his weights and measures, is that a, was that a pound there? Depending on how well he knows the, the commodities market for Spikenard, the way he describes it is more than 400 pence. That's the phrase in Mark chapter 14, verse 5. This could have been sold for more than 300 pence. And that's a year's wage for our common laborer. Remember your penny appointed? And if you work a day out in the field, you get your penny. And if you knock off Sabbath days, 52 of those, and some feast days now and then, uh, 365 down to about 300. So a year's worth? Back when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, remember when he said, well, what do we have? Let's, let's feed them. And the apostles are like, you would need more than 200 pennies worth of bread to feed a multitude like that. Well, if 200 pennies worth would feed 5,000 men plus women plus children for a day, imagine how much good 300, not just 200, 300 pence worth of bread. How many would that feed? Again, I want to... to cut Judas and the others some slack here based on experiences they've already had. That's a good concern. Do you have any idea what else could have been done with that money? Whenever you're trying to budget things, that, that, it's opportunity cost, right? And since we have finite funds, we have to decide where will they best be used. And Judas and others among that circle of apostles we're thinking that, ah, there were better things to do. You could have used a few grams, a few drops of that precious ointment. You didn't have to break the bank. And if you were going to break it, then just use some on Jesus. And use the vast majority on people that Jesus loves and cares for. Now we're going to keep dwelling on this thought 
And we're going to come back to it in just a moment. But let me explain a little bit more of, about spikenard so we understand why this is such a sacrifice and why a pound of it would, would require an entire year's worth of work. Now, spikenard itself comes from a plant that grows in the Himalayas of China and India and Nepal. The Himalayas? Can you imagine how much work it would take to bring spikenard back to Jerusalem? I mean, so much of human history has, been, has, been, has revolved around economics and trying to find something that is rare and therefore expensive, valuable, and then how do I acquire it as cheaply as I can so I can make a profit when I sell it to other people who are willing to pay top dollar? Uh, if you think about the, the explorers, especially the Europeans that were trying desperately to get to India for these spice, the spice trade and the spice routes, uh, do we get or go around Africa to get there? There's got to be a cheaper way, a faster. Maybe we go west. And if the earth is round, is there a shortcut to get to the Indies? Think about that. And this is so a day before technology, a day before transportation, uh, that would have made things like this a little cheaper to come by. No, it would have cost a fortune to acquire spikenard. To the point that commoners would probably never catch a whiff of it. Unless, of course, they went to the temple. Because this is an important detail. Spikenard was one of the ingredients used in the incense that was burned in the temple. Remember, it's the odor that fills the king's house as he sits at table. Uh, a place, a, a smell that you would associate with sacred space. There's something powerful about this, that this is, this is a smell for, for kings and priests. This is a scent we want to ascend to God himself. Oh, Mary, you know more than you realize. But to think about what this spike nerd would cost. And like I said, no wonder the apostles are concerned, like, ooh, that was a little, a little overkill on, on your offering. I actually did some, some homework myself to just try to make, kind of put in perspective. Now, I, I looked up on some essential oils websites to see what would it cost to acquire spikenard in our day. And our day includes the technology to, to process it, the te transportation to bring it. It would be so much easier for us to produce spikenard than for Mary to attain it somehow in the ancient world. Well, based on my research on these, on these websites, you can buy spikenard as an essential oil in these little five milliliter bottles. Now, if you do the, the milliliters uh, and then get it to the point with it, that you're at a pound of spikenard, uh, it would take 91 of those little bottles. Now, I've read that the Roman pound was less than, than what we use today for our pound, so maybe we don't need 91, but let's just stick with the, the numbers that we've got for our day. And 91, to get one of those little bottles of spikenard, costs $54 wholesale. Uh, if you're not a distributor and, you're, and you can't get it wholesale, then $72 to get it retail. But let's, let's, let's say we're on the inn, okay, and go, go, uh, go conservative here. 
Yeah, it would still cost almost $5,000 to get a, a pound's worth of Spikner. And that's at wholesale. Uh, it, it's, and, and, and like I said, that this is a far cry from cost in the ancient world. No wonder it took not $5,000, but an entire year's wage. Yeah, no wonder they're thinking, oh, the poor would have been blessed infinitely, well, almost infinitely, by this incredible gift. No wonder it says in the Matthew account, but when his disciples saw it, they had indignation. So it's not just like, whoa, that's, that's a shocker. It's they're angry. And it's not just Judas. It's the disciples, the apostles. They're indignant. And notice what they say. To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So they were thinking of the poor as well. Not just Judas because he's a thief and he has the bag and he bears what's put therein. Okay, calm down, John. It's all right. Yeah, this is some righteous indignation on his part decades after the fact. Well, speaking of righteous indignation, they all felt it at the moment. What are you doing, Mary? Notice the language. For To what purpose is this waste? Now, ponder those two words for a moment. To what purpose? Purpose speaks to pragmatism. And Latter-day Saints, for the most part, are a pragmatic people. It's our pioneer ancestry. And, and use it up and wear it out and make it do and do with, or do without. Okay? Uh, what's the purpose here? And, and we, got, we need our year's supply of food and our 72-hour kits. And, and we've got to get everything in line and, and make sure things are happening. Okay? Now, I'm a huge fan of pragmatism. In fact, maybe at my core, I'm a pragmatist more than anything because I, I want to help answer people's questions. I want the gospel to mean something in people's lives. That's why I focus so much on application and relevance, because this is not some kind of just esoteric knowledge. I'm not trying to prepare people for, for gospel jeopardy. I'm hoping that the gospel of Jesus Christ will teach us how to live with very specific, pragmatic purposes of how we're supposed to live in a Christ-like way. It'll change the world. And that's a pretty noble purpose in my book. Now, for them, though, they're thinking there were greater purposes than a, a quick filling of the room. The, the room would have smelled great with a few ounces. But a pound? What purpose did you have in mind, Mary? And what a colossal waste when it could have been used for other things. But here's... Here's the point I want to make here. Pragmatism, that was Martha's gift, not Mary's. Mary's gift was pietism. Pietism, piety, is the worship side of things. Pragmatism is the work side of things. Both are absolutely essential, incredibly important. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to throw Martha under the bus all over again. When we first met Mary and Martha, I tried to elevate Martha and help us see both types of discipleship are absolutely essential. It's just a, a matter of time. And when we talk about one thing is needful, the what is needful usually depends on the when it's needful. 
for the rich young ruler, what he needed to do in that moment was sell and give to the poor. But in this moment, Mary, I, I'm not forcing you to be a Martha, just like I never forced Martha to be a Mary. Pragmatism and pietism are contraries that need to be proven. Service and sacrifice are contraries that need to be proven. Work and worship need to balance each other out. But to me, there's something magnificent here about Mary's act of, of pure consecration, above and beyond. Something so far beyond that it's shocking to people to the point that the pragmatists in the room are thinking, what are you doing? Why would you waste so much? When in, Mar in Mary's heart, it's not a waste at all. Can there be waste when you are just trying to worship? When you recognize the king sitting at your table, when you recognize the God who has condescended to come, not just before the altar at the temple, but before the table at your own home. I will give all that I have to honor him. And that's what Mary is doing here. As Latter-day Saints, like I said, we're such pragmatic people. We're such hard workers. And so many of the things that we do in the church have pragmatic purposes. Even the spiritual things have a, pragma have a pragmatic side. If DNC 29 says that there's nothing purely temporal in the, Savior's, in the Lord's mind, it's all spiritual to Him, then they're so connected that no wonder temporal things have spiritual components and spiritual things have pragmatic purposes and so on. There is pragmatism in the Word of Wisdom. Uh, there's pragmatism in tithing and fasting. There's, there's purposes behind all of those things. But even beyond the purposes... Can we infuse the pragmatic with a little more piety? Can we infuse our work with a lot more worship? I think we can, especially in the temple. I've said this before, but if I write on my board at, at, uh, at school or in classes, T-E-M-P-L-E, -E, temple, space, W-O-R, fill in the blank, all I ever get is K, temple work. And no one seems to remember S-H-I-P, temple worship. It's the pragmatism in us. It's, we're all Marthas, okay? And it's good to be Martha. But to be Mary, to infuse your Martha experiences with Mary mindfulness, and to... Well, and I'll even say this. Speaking particularly of the temple, there are some things in the church... Like I said, most things are very pragmatic. There are some things that without a gospel perspective, without an eternal lens, what a waste. What a colossal waste. Because there seems to be no purpose here. And brace yourself. The temple is probably the, the best example, or the, the greatest, the biggest example of that I can think of. Because if there is no resurrection, if ordinances don't matter, then there is no greater waste of time, 
our time, of money, our money, than building temples. What does it do? We, we go and we act as proxy for those that have passed on. But if you die and that's it, then what a waste. To what purpose would you spend so much time there? Well, that's the beauty. What keeps it from becoming wasteful? And what infuses that with purpose is what we know about the resurrection and the worth of souls. The importance of ordinances, the covenant connections that we are forging to Christ. To me, there's something beautiful every time we, we go to the temple to recognize the non-pragmatic nature of it all. And realize that we are bearing eloquent witness, powerful testimony coming at personal cost that we do believe in the eternal nature of the soul. That something is happening here. And there's no waste involved at all. I'll say one last thing here about this perceived waste and tie it back to what we saw in John's condemnation of Judas at the beginning. Remember what John said. When Judas piped up and said, Oh, this, think about the poor. And John is hinting, Judas wasn't thinking about the poor. He was not offended for their sake. He was offended for his own because he seemed to be the treasurer among the twelve. And if he's the one holding the bag, and if he's a thief at heart, then, ah, oh, you should have sold the 300 pence, or you should have sold the spikenard, gotten the 300 pence. It would have gone into my bag since I'm the one that holds it for the apostles. And yes, I would have distributed to the poor, but well, I'm poor too. I go out without purse or script, but since I'm the one holding the purse, then maybe I can donate to myself now and then and skim a little off the top. At least that's what John was accusing Judas of, of having in mind. He didn't do it because he cared for the poor. Now let's go back to our thoughts about the temple and the massive sacrifice financial particularly, that goes into their construction and upkeep. I don't know if there's anything more expensive, uh, as far as construction is concerned, than building temples all over the world. And at President Nelson's rate, <laughs> wow, uh, we're going to be spending a lot of not only widow's mites, but an amazing number of pounds of spikenard. And I do know of some people who either have left the church or are struggling in their faith that say similar things about what a waste when this money could have been used to give to the poor. Now, sometimes it's not people that have left the church or are thinking about it. These are good members with a good thought in mind. <sighs> do, we, do we want to spend this much money on a temple when we could have been spent? Think about humanitarian aid and how much of a contribution the church could make if we weren't building such lavish temples, such elegant places. Now I'm going to come back to that thought, but for now, based on what John said about Judas, can we be self-reflective and think, why would I make that kind of complaint? If it's noble and we really are concerned about the poor, then wonderful. You're, I think we're permitted then to wonder ah, how much budget, again, it's the budgeting. And how much do I put to this? How much do I put to that? 
we have to make those kinds of decisions when we decide how generous will my fast offering be? Am I giving to the poor or am I spending it on other things? Now, the, the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes has to make those same kinds of decisions. But I do worry about some. And I'm not accusing anyone out there specifically. Uh, if, the truth, if this hurts, then it's meant to. Uh, but I'm not trying to, to point fingers at any specific, uh, specific people. But my concern here is those that say that when they don't really care for the poor, but they just have a bone to pick with the church and they're angry about something else and they second guess the apostles' choice of expenditures. I had a student, actually he wasn't a student, he was the friend of a student, but this friend said, or the student said to his friend, come and meet Brother Halverson. I just, you're about to leave the church, can you at least talk with him first? And so the three of us met and we had a fascinating conversation. Uh, when it boiled down to things, he said, I'm leaving the church over its history of racism. I said, oh, really? Tell, tell me more about what you know about the history of race in the church. And uh, I asked him about a, a bunch of books that were on my shelf uh, in, the, in, the, in my office, uh, sitting across from him. Uh, have you read that or that or this or that or the other? And, and he's like, no, I don't, I don't have it. So, okay, so where are you getting this information about the, the, the hor horrific racism throughout the history of the church? Not, not, not to say there hasn't been any, okay? I just wonder how much homework have you done to contextualize things and understand? Uh, we've got a lot of growing up to do. We've got a lot of, of, of progress ahead. And we've made a lot of progress, but still have more to do. So I understand where you're coming from. I'm just, I just want to kind of understand a little bit better about your concern over race. Because based on what you've been describing, uh, that's the reason you're about to leave the church and break covenants and so on. So man, you must be really passionate about racial equality. Am I right? And it was so interesting, the more he talked and the more he opened up, and I wasn't trying to be combative and I wasn't trying to be accusatory. I was trying to understand. But the better I understood, the more I wanted him to really understand. Is that really the reason you're leaving the church? Again, go back to that. Not that he cared for the poor. Of course Judas cared for the poor. But not so much that that's the sole cause behind his indignation over Mary's sacrifice. Now, was this young man concerned about race? Yes. But was that the sole reason he was up in arms about the church and ready to, to leave it behind? Or was that just one thing among many, but one that seemed to have an easy, uh, an easy handle to hold? Because I even asked him, I said, okay, let's say you leave the church over, over racial issues. Uh, in some ways, I'm proud of you for being so adamant about equality that you are willing to make drastic changes in, in the direction of your life and your relationships with family members that are still faithful and active in the church. That, wow, this is serious. So you are a race crusader and we need some. That's good. I'm just curious, uh, now, now that you're going to leave the church behind, what's your next step in your righteous indignation? What's your next step 
to to increase racial equality in the world. Since that seems to, that's the move, the moving the driving factor in your life. It was so interesting to just see the light bulb come on as he realized, am I using this as an excuse when I'm not a race crusader. I'm not going to do anything besides leave the church. I'm not going to go volunteer in organizations and try to work on racial reconciliation. I'm not, that isn't what drives me. It's not what I care most about. Judas, that's not what you care most about. I acknowledge that you care about it. But that, please do not justify your decisions by chalking it all up to that noble purpose. There's something a little less selfless lying at the core. And again, not, not wanting to become confrontational, but for anyone who is struggling in their faith and deciding whether to stay in the church or to leave, please be honest with yourself and be slow and studious and careful and really think rather than the laundry lists of easy justifications that you can find in any number of social media <laughs> venues or, or podcasts or whatever it might be. It's, I'm amazed at so many people, especially ex-members of the church that are now attacking the church, that just throw things out hoping that something will stick to the wall and that people can grab a hold of whatever feels most justifiable to you. Now, I'm not saying there aren't problems. I'm not saying there aren't things that will justify people's concern. I'm the first to, to acknowledge that as I'm aware of things. But, but is that really why you're leaving? Or is there something different? Just ponder that as you pause. Now, Jesus in this moment, recognizing what's going on, and you have this ultimate act of self-sacrifice and personal consecration on Mary's part. And then you have these other, he, she's getting ganged up on by the apostles. And th th this dinner is not going according to plan. It, it's, she's now feeling horrible, like, did I, did I do something wrong? And Jesus rushes to the rescue, defending her. This is Mary and Martha all over again. It's so interesting. But in John chapter 12, verse 7, then said Jesus, let her alone. I love that. It reminds me of when he comes down the Mount of Transfiguration and everyone seems to be interrogating the apostles. And he comes to their, their rescue. What are you asking them about? Let them alone, essentially, is what he's saying. That's what, exactly what he says to his apostles here. And then he explains Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. She's been saving it for this moment all along. Perhaps she has known better than the rest of you. Perhaps she took seriously what I've been saying for the past few months about what lies ahead for me. And all of a sudden it dawned on her, that's what this spike nerd is meant for. It's for the day of my burying which is only days away. He then said, For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. 
which also puts into perspective the element of time. When can you do certain things? Versus times that come and go and windows of opportunity that close and close for good. Now in the Mark version of this, chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, Jesus says similar things. Let her alone, that same three-word phrase, but then how about this one? Why trouble ye her? Why do people always misjudge Mary whenever she's doing Mary-type things? Uh, It was Martha a while ago, now it's the apostles today. Why are you troubling her? And he explains, she hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. Again, this recognition that some opportunities are time-specific. One thing is needful, and the needful what usually coincides with a needful when. The poor aren't going anywhere, sadly. I wish that weren't the case. I wish we could solve poverty. And we're working towards it in our pragmatic way. There will be times to be incredibly charitable, rich young ruler, looking at you, but times to be fully consecrated in worshipful ways. And now is exactly that time because I have less than a week remaining with you. For the day of my burying, she's been saving this and there's no more time to wait. In some ways I'm haunted by this when I think about raising children because Some things you always have opportunities to to work on, but some things you don't. And if if we're looking for time-specific examples of discipleship, then children you have not always with you. They grow up so fast and take advantage of windows of opportunity that right now, before they leave, I, I can bless them and to do just that. Now, Matthew repeats Mark's account almost identically, but he adds this interesting detail. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. So again, we tie it back into what we saw in the John version. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. There's something about the burial and something about this ointment that is meant to point us to a burial. Now, back to John, chapter 12. In verse 7, right after he says, against the day of my burying, there's a JST. And the JST clarifies something in an interesting way. Jesus adds, For she hath preserved this ointment until now, that she might anoint me in token of my burial. Now think about the language there. In token of my burial. A token is a reminder. A token points to some deeper, greater, grander reality. We use tokens in the temple to point to deeper truths about the atonement of Jesus Christ, about his death and burial and resurrection. In fact, in some ways, the temple... This this dawned on me as I was pondering these passages, as I was thinking about the way that some people attack the church based on the use of its funds, 
to build temples when they should have been caring for the poor. Well, in some ways, what Mary has done here is exactly what we do when we make contributions to build the temples of the Lord. In a way, taking our offerings and giving them to the Lord to build temples to his name, that is the equivalent of Mary's pound of spikenard here. Breaking the bank to do something that others might consider wasteful, but as an act of pure worship to a king and a god who condescends to dwell among us. There is something so profound here. The temple veil, according to the book of Hebrews, represents the body of Christ that was torn on the cross and parted the veil so that we could enter God's presence. Jesus himself referred to the temple as his body, or vice versa, his body as a temple. Which means, again, if if Mary was anointing the body of Jesus in preparation for his burial, we are offering deep self-sacrifice to be able to build temples to the Lord and enter therein to worship. Next time you go to the temple, Try to catch a whiff of the spike nerd that is there, symbolically. Look at the, the beauty, the elegance of that place. Realize that it is a, a house meant for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We can cut corners in the chapel. And our chapels are fine, they're nice, but they don't break the bank. Oh, we, we, we construct at a different at a different level, when it's the house of the Lord. And to those that are complaining, for whatever reason, that, it, that that was a waste of sacred funds, please understand this. In a way, by building temples, we are giving to the poor. In ways that, that no one else can. The poorest of the poor, the most needy, the most unable to provide for themselves are those spirits on the other side that never had the chance to accept Jesus and his saving ordinances in life. There's the poor. And for us to be able to offer to them more than bread to get you through a day, but to offer to them the bread of life that they can eat and never hunger again, pour out to them the living water and they drink and never again thirst, it's salvation that we're extending. And that can only happen in the temple of God. And so we are giving to the poor in spiritual ways. But for those more concerned about temporal ways, which I understand, again, that's a noble purpose. I'm so grateful that President Monson added a fourth mission to the threefold mission of the church. The first three were typically spiritual in nature. The fourth was more temporal, more practical, more pragmatic serve the poor and needy, provide for them. Church humanitarian aid, church welfare is just as important as the other elements of spiritual salvation. Amen to all of that. But please understand that our sacrifices at the, at the expense of the poor to build temples is not at the poor's expense. 
Because what the temples are doing is creating consecrated saints who then go out and give their time, their money, their all to serve the poor, to bless those around them, to build the kingdom of God on earth and to establish Zion where they are of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and there be no poor among them. We're trying to establish Zion, and there's no better place to create Zion saints than in the temples of the Lord. So in some ways, a temple is an investment in the poor. Instead of giving them the money directly, which we still do in humanitarian aid, we are creating disciples that will then, we are multiplying disciples, which will then go make a difference everywhere they can in the world. Think about it in these terms. Building a chapel is like building a hospital. But building a temple is like building a medical school. Think about the difference. Some people, I, I was asked this in my mission, why doesn't your church do more to build hospitals? Well, I didn't know it at the time, but we did in the pioneer era. And it wasn't until the church realized there are other people that can run these hospitals. Uh, with the, the science and technology and outside influence has come into Utah to the point that, that they can run them. Let's donate the hospitals and then let them run it themselves. And they did. Did the same thing with schools. Public education is finally at a point where we can transfer responsibility with, for all these pioneer academies and turn them into state schools. And the church has done exactly that. So... <laughs> Don't get, off, don't, don't get after us for not having hospitals and schools. We, we've done that, okay, and, and provided. But the interesting thing about a hospital is it still takes people to staff them. And if you had a finite amount of funds, what is going to go the longer distance? Building a hospital and then just hoping that people can come and run it? Or building a medical school that prepares the doctors and nurses that can then go out and do these things, not only at that hospital, but all the others that need to be created. Do you understand the analogy I'm using here? Another one is, if I give to humanitarian aid, it fills the bishop's storehouse, and that's essential. But by giving to the temples, and in the temples creating consecrated saints, then now I am preparing people who will staff the bishop's storehouse, and continue filling it themselves. Do you understand the difference? Temples are one of the greatest investments in the, in the quality of consecration that you could ever imagine. It is holding on to the seed corn so we can provide for later harvests. It is building houses of worship and houses of work but houses that create people that will then go out and build houses for the poor that will provide in incredible ways. Please keep that in mind as you wonder about the choices that are being made in the expenditures of sacred funds. Now back to our narrative. Go to Mark chapter 14, verse 8. And what Jesus says here on the heels of let her alone, here he says, she hath done what she could. And I can't imagine a greater statement of praise than that. It's one thing to think, well done, thou good and faithful servants, like we saw last week in Matthew 25. 
Oh, that's high praise, and I hope that we all eventually receive it. But in the meantime, when we wonder if I have enough talents to multiply it all, to have a phrase like that, she hath done what she could, that's the widow's might, right? She gave what she could, all she could. And here for Mary, she hath done what she could too. She can't stop my death from occurring. I wouldn't let her anyway. She can't, she can't join me in Gethsemane, though I'm sure she was among those that were standing at the foot of the cross. She's just trying to prepare my body for the burial and doing anything within her power to help me prepare. This is the equivalent of Nicodemus with his hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. Oh, he will do what he can at the burial. Mary just beat him to it and tried to prepare Jesus for it. This is the, the bookend of the wise men at the beginning of Jesus' life who come with frankincense and myrrh because they recognize King and God and sacrifice. And now Mary is doing the same thing. In fact, and this is the part that really blew me away, as I was researching essential oils and trying to see how expensive spikenard would be, I noticed how spikenard was described in terms of its properties and what essential oil you use for this or for that or for other things. And do you know what spikenard is typically used for? It's meant to uplift mood and promote relaxation. And when that dawned on me, oh, to think what Mary is trying to do, I know what lies ahead for Jesus. I know what must be weighing so heavy on his shoulders. Jesus is about to face the most traumatic experiences, not only of his life, but of all human life. Infinite and eternal then what is the least that I can do? Can I fill this room with the aroma, the odor of this ointment, and provide, provide for Jesus some measure of preparatory relief? That's why, despite the fact John says, ah, it's six days before, and it's before the triumphal entry, I do love the thought of Matthew Mark saying, oh, no. Leave it for Wednesday. And let Jesus up, give him something to uplift his mood. Something to calm his troubled heart. As this baptism in blood and this immersion in agony looms ever larger on the horizon. Spikenard, yes, Mary was prepared for such a time as this. No wonder Jesus says in Matthew 26, 13, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever the gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. And here we are, doing exactly that. Preaching the gospel in the whole world. Technology has allowed that to happen. And doing what? Honoring Mary and her magnificent, non-pragmatic, 
self-sacrifice. She hath done what she could, that's for sure. She's inviting us thereby to do what we can, whatever it might be. In the JST of that, by the way, one last phrase is added. Jesus says, and in this thing that she hath done, she shall be blessed. And yes, she has been. Are we still blessing her? It's so beautiful that, kind of like Zacchaeus, everyone else looks down on him, but Jesus looks up to him in the sycamore tree. Oh, poor Mary. Everyone looking down on her. What are you doing? What are you thinking? And Jesus elevating her, as he always does. Looking up to her, saying, people will never forget what she's done here. They may forget the quiet acts of simple service. They may forget what would have been done. Those poor would have probably forgotten the meal that was given to them based on the sale of this pound of spikenard. But this act of true and pure worship will be a memorial to her. Temples are our memorial to the Lord, honoring his atonement, his burial, his resurrection, all that he does for us. And I think there's something beautiful about our sacrifices, not just being memorials to the Lord we love, but also memorials of those who love and serve and sacrifice for him. Oh, think of that next time you donate to the temple. We're going to move forward now, but I want to say one last thing about this moment. I hope I haven't been belaboring in the point. But I've mentioned before, beautiful resource on, on Instagram called Come Follow Me Poetry. And a new friend of mine, Robbie Taggart, writes incredible poems. And a friend of his, I haven't met him yet, but James Dewey is another gifted poet that wrote something marvelous about this, this moment in the New Testament. He called it Honor Mary's Spikenard, which is exact, exactly what Jesus was telling his apostles to do. Honor what she's done. <laughs> Leave her alone. Recognize the glory here and remember her for it. Well, in this poem, Brother Dewey describes that anointing on his head as a liquid crown, which was such an incredible visual image. To think about the crown of thorns that is about to descend upon him, which will eventually be replaced with the crown of glory. But what precedes those two crowns is a crown of liquid love. From the crown of thorns, blood would begin dripping down his face. But before that moment of pain is this moment of preparation. As this calming, soothing oil begins to drip down the face of Jesus. Later in his poem, Brother Dewey says this, and I think of the Song of Solomon verse along these lines. A honeysuckle curtain dropped on the room and filled everyone's nostrils, coloring their tongues, coating the roofs of their mouths, disturbing their bread. And when they challenged this lavish squandering, he replied, is there any waste in thanks? Can generosity ever run wrong? 
Doesn't one act of love enrich us all? Remember what you see here. Remember what you smell, what you taste and hear and feel. And when you remember her, remember me. I think Jesus would say the reverse as well. When you remember me, remember her. Remember my sacrifice, but remember the sacrifice of those who treasure what I'm offering to them. Giving what they can because of their willingness to receive all that I offer. I love this story of Mary. I love the thought of Jesus. And this Wednesday, again, I, John, if it happened Saturday, fine. It's good preparation for the triumphal entry. But if it happened on Wednesday, no better time to prepare Jesus for all that lies ahead. A baptism in blood, an immersion in agony, but a crown of liquid love. Now, Mary's consecration in this moment is what makes the next story so hard to swallow. There's a juxtaposition here of Mary's act of incredible self-sacrifice to Judas's act of incredible selfishness. Mary giving, Judas taking. Mary preparing Jesus for his death. Judas preparing to participate with those that would cause that death. Because in that very moment, as Judas realizes, wait a minute, I, I pushed back against Mary, thinking there was a better way to use those funds, and Jesus sided with, him, with her instead of with me? That seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back on Judas's part. Because it's right on the heels of that, probably offended by what Jesus has done and said. First offended by what Mary did, and then offended by how Jesus responded to it. That he then says, forget it, and goes and finds the chief priests and starts to plot the betrayal. This, this was a gift to the high priest and chief priests and elders and scribes like that we met earlier. They're trying to figure out, how do we do this in the absence of the people? And then, guess who knocks on the door? Here comes Judas with a plan of his own. Now in the Matthew account, chapter 26, verse 14, right on the heels of the anointing of Jesus, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests. He's the one starting this. He's initiated. He just goes to them. Luke gives a little bit more background. He says, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains. So Judas isn't going alone. The adversary is right alongside him. And so Satan and Judas there go and meet people cut from the same kind of cloth. And Judas said unto them, what will ye give me that I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now it's just going to be a matter of time. And Judas is looking for chances. Here, there, now when's a good time I can do this and get away with it? Now, 
like I said, this is initiative on Judas's part. He's the one that starts this. He goes out and, and seeks audience with the chief priests. And the irony is, when, the, when he asks, what will you give me? And they say, oh, how about 30 pieces of silver? That's it. He accepts. Now, there's no haggling. There's no bartering. What kind of Middle Easterner just accepts the first offer? No, it's always back and forth and back and forth. But no, it's like, uh, okay, sure, 30 pieces of silver, good enough for me. In fact, and this is even scarier, in the Mark account of all of this, this is Mark 14, 10 and 11, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. JST adds, for he turned away from him, Jesus, and was offended because of his words. So sure enough, he was angry, indignant over what Jesus had said about Mary's offering. Now, keep going in Mark. When they, these chief priests, heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So in the Mark account, yes, there's initiative, but this time... Judas doesn't even ask for anything. He just comes to them and makes the offer. I, I'm, I'm here to provide some services. And in, in the Mark account, at least, he's willing to do it pro bono. I'm just trying to get rid of Jesus. And, and any, if I can help you, if you scratch, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'm so angry what, the, way, the way I was just mistreated. And... Oh, there's nothing quite like an offended person to try to seek vengeance in any way they can. No, I'll just, I'll just betray him. And it's the chief priests that then say, oh, that's, let's make sure this happens. Let's sweeten the deal somewhat. And let's offer to pay him for his services. Now, the 30 pieces is interesting because it was prophesied it would be that way. In Zechariah, one of those minor prophets that wasn't so minor in his messianic approach, he says this in chapter 11, verse 12. If ye think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And there's prophecy fulfilled when Jesus comes. Now the irony there, according to the book of Exodus, in the law of Moses, how much is a person worth? The worth of souls is great in the sight of God, but forget the worth of souls. How about the worth of slaves? What if you have a slave and a neighbor's ox happens to come and gore him to death? You're out a slave. Well, how do you make that right? Well, according to the law of Moses, eh, 30 pieces of silver would do. The owner of the ox has to kill the ox. They need to be out that. And then if this ox is dangerous, then let's end this thing. We don't want any more uh, servants to die. But to try to recompense, killing the ox doesn't do anything for the owner of the slave. Okay, That might make him feel better. Like, hey, now you lost something too. But how do you make it up to him? Well, if the slave was purchased, then go buy yourself another one. What's the value of a slave anyway? They're pretty interchangeable. So the law of Moses says, you owe the, the, the owner of the ox now owes the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver. And with that, you should be able to buy yourself another, another good one. Wow. In the story of Joseph in Egypt, by the way, he is sold by his brothers to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. 
What a deal. Well, no. Joseph was younger. What, 17? For a youthful slave, you can get those cheaper. They can't work as hard. They don't have as big muscles. 20 pieces of silver will do for a young slave. 30 pieces is required for a full-grown one. Well, how are these chief priests perceiving Jesus? And sadly, how is Judas perceiving him? Based on the fact that he agreed? Oh, sure. This servant of sin is now perceiving Jesus as no more than a servant himself. Now, we're going to talk more about Judas in a couple of weeks when we actually see him act on this agreement and see him there in the shadows of Gethsemane betray the Savior with a kiss. We won't pass judgment complete, or at least final judgment, on him here or there, though we'll talk more about Judas's judgment when we get to the actual act. For now, let's just return to one of the words that was used in that Mark account. It, it's fascinating. Because when it says that when he received the money, uh, the blood money, the agreement to go forward with what he planned to do for free himself, at least as Mark is describing it, notice the phrase, he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And that's an interesting word. Just as interesting as the phrase in Luke chapter 22, verse 6, Luke's version of this, when Judas promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Now, couple of those two phrases. Conveniently betray, thank you, Mark, in the absence of the multitude. Thank you, Luke. Because when it comes to betraying Jesus, that's often how we do it. We're going to see more of our connections to Judas in a moment. They're, they're haunting. They're, they're, it's scary when you look in the mirror and see some resemblance to Judas on occasion. But based on this language, when does that often occur? Number one, out of convenience. And number two, in the absence of the multitude. It was Elder Holland that wrote a talk, or gave a talk, called The Inconvenient Messiah. And that's a pretty good description of the kinds of great expectations the Lord has for us. And yes, he asks us to give us, to give him, oh, 18 to 24 months of our lives as missionaries at the, at the best time of life. He asks us to serve, not when it's convenient to us, but often when it's downright inconvenient. Oh, the poor we have always among us. But easy opportunities to serve, we don't always have those among us. And even when we do, Jesus usually avoids those and goes for the hard times instead. Do we sometimes betray Jesus out of a sense of convenience? And think, ah, it's, it would be inconvenient of me to pay tithing right now because uh, I've got a lot of bills to pay. It would be inconvenient to spend, to waste time at the temple when there's just no purpose to it. It would be a waste. It would be inconvenient to go minister or to magnify a calling or to, to serve those around me. Well, when would, when's it going to be convenient? The inconvenient Messiah, 
doesn't usually care about our own convenience. Yeah, granted, he doesn't want us to run faster than we have strength. But he often asks us to, us to run <laughs> when it doesn't seem like we have much time for the race. Beware, is all I'm trying to say, of our sins of convenience. And secondly, beware of those sins that happen in the absence of the multitude. I mean, there are times where we sin because of the multitude. And it's peer pressure, and they're pushing us, and, and we care too much about what people think. Right? We're reeds shaken in the wind. We want to hold on to our place in the secular synagogue. Yes, we often betray Jesus in the presence of the multitude as a result of the multitude. But there are other times that we, that we prefer to betray him when no one is looking. And behind closed doors or when no one seems to be aware, in the absence of the multitude, we do things that are the equivalent of betraying Jesus. We know better. We have been disciples following him these past three years. And yet, for whatever reason, we've been offended. We turn away. And we betray him. And it's with that that we can move forward to Thursday and the Last Supper. There may have been some other preparations going on on Wednesday. Uh, Passover meal is a big, a big deal. And if Jesus has, foxes have holes, uh, but Jesus has no place to lay his head. And notice he's not going to impose upon Martha. I'm sure she would have been more than willing to cumber herself about with much serving. But no, let's let her have a smaller Passover meal in the presence of Mary and Lazarus. Uh, we, won't, we won't add to her burden. But let's prepare ourselves for this day. And if we go to the Mark account, we, we can do this anywhere. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the preparation for the Last Supper. But let's go to Mark 14 and read verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover. And here again, Matthew's going to omit that detail because his Jewish audience knows that that's the day you killed the Passover. Now for Matthew, it's just the day of the feast of the unleavened bread. But for Mark, and we could add for Luke as well, this is the day of unleavened bread. This is when they killed the Passover. Like I said earlier, John is going to wait for tomorrow for that to happen. But here in the Synoptic Gospels, it's now Thursday. First day, the Passover lamb is being killed in Jewish homes across Jerusalem. Mark continues, His disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? Notice the focus on thou. Where do you want us to go so we can prepare for you the Passover? As far as they're concerned, this is all about him, not about themselves. More concerned to meet his needs than their own. As far as they know, are we even invited? I don't know. But we know you need to eat the Passover, and so how can we prepare for you to do it? Verse 13, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. Luke says it was Peter and John. And the Lord says to them, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. So he takes their thous and replaces them with we's and us's. Okay? We're all in this thing together. Okay? Let's, let's stay together for this meal. Now back to Mark's version. He saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. 
follow him. Now, Matthew's version just said, go into the city to such a man. So he's a little more vague in the Matthew account. Now, how am I supposed, there's just going to be a man there, such a man? How am I supposed to know? That's why I'm grateful for the Mark version. Well, you'll recognize him because he's burying a pitcher of water. He's your go-to guy. Follow him. Now, it's interesting because there are times where Jesus is super specific. Remember with, for the triumphal entry? You're going to find a donkey, and not just any old donkey. You're going to find it at a place where two ways meet. Fork in the road. That's the donkey that we're after. No one's ever sat on him. Okay? Ask the master. He'll know. He'll hand over the keys. It'll be fine. Uh, he, does, he does that with, um, with Peter when he's got tax money to pay. Go down to the lake and cast in a line, and the first fish that you catch will have the money in its mouth. So there are times that Jesus is really specific about his directions. No, 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 cast your nets on that side of the boat, and that's where you'll find the fish. Okay. Then again, there are other times where he's pretty vague. Uh, as a missionary, sadly, a lot of times it was vague, like, just go find the faithful, find the well-prepared. Like, where do, they, where do they live? Do you have an address? Uh, no, just knock doors and ask neighbors and, and seek until you find. But there are other times where the Lord is so crystal clear, that's the person you need to talk to. And this is the way you need to approach them. I had a few of those in, on my mission as well. But in this case, here's this, this water bearer, someone with a pitcher. Now, if he's bearing the pitcher because it's Passover time, then he's probably preparing for a meal too. Hmm. We're looking for an observant Jew who, who cares to keep the commandments and is trying to honor deliverance and is actually going out to seek water to serve to those around him. Hmm. Yeah, we want someone service-oriented. We want, if there's disciples out there that, yeah, yeah, this is the perfect person to follow. Also, interesting detail, that this is technically woman's work, if we can use a dangerous phrase. Back in those days, it was typically the women that went out to the wells to get, to get water. So you would have thought it would be a woman bearing a pitcher of water. But no, this is going to be a man. This is going to, he's going to stick out like a sore thumb, because men don't do this. But again, all the more reason to follow that kind of faithful disciple. Someone who's willing to lower himself to do something that others would deem beneath him. Does that sound like the condescending Christ? Who is willing to do the work of a servant, descend below all things, bear a pitcher of living water, and pour it out for us that we might never thirst again. This sounds like good preparation for the Passover. And so it is. In verse 14, Jesus says, Wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good men of the house, the master saith, where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? In Matthew's version, 26 verse 18, the master saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. So that's an interesting phrase. In the, in the Mark version, go to this goodman of the house, follow the servant, get to the, the master of the house, and say to him, you may be a good man, but there's a better man that, that we're trying to prepare for. And so, do you have a guest chamber? Where is it? We sure would love to eat the Passover there, or the Lord would love to eat the Passover there with his disciples. That, that's the gentle approach of, of Mark. But the Matthew approach was so much more bold if the master's like, wait, wait, what are, you, what are you doing coming in? 
then tell them the master's time is at hand and we're here to eat dinner. We're here to have the Passover. This is just like what we saw with the donkey. Just say the master needs it. And it's like, oh, okay. This is the uh, first century equivalent of commandeering someone's vehicle, okay? Uh, or of imminent domain. We need to take the house. And this good man of the house, who must have been good indeed, does recognize someone even gooder, <laughs> even better. And of course, I will make way for him. This is the opposite of the innkeepers 33 years ago. Those who had no room in their inns for Jesus. This good man is happy to clear out the guest chamber to make, make sure Jesus has room for his Passover meal. And just how much room was it? Notice Mark chapter 14, verse 15 through 17. Jesus is still prophesying here. He's preparing his apostles to prepare for him. He tells them, He will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. Sure enough, his disciples went forth, came into the city, found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening, he, Jesus, cometh with the twelve. And we're ready for the Last Supper. But... I can't think about the words that are used here. The, descri the description of that room in Mark's account, Matthew's is a little sparse. Luke hardly says anything about it. But the way Mark describes the room is, is profound. Perhaps a good Sabbath day activity would be to take these four adjectives and really ponder how they might describe our offerings to the Lord or the, the space and time that we carve out to give to him. Because notice the, the four adjectives. It is large, it is upper, it is furnished, and it's prepared. Think about that. Is the space we give Jesus large? Does he have plenty of room to do with us all that he desires? Or are we kind of squeezing him into side closets, hoping he, does, hoping he doesn't take up too much space? Again, I know I'm speaking to the choir because I'm <laughs> talking to people that are willing to endure these eternal lessons. Oh, they're large, that's for sure. And here you are willing to give the Lord so much space to study his word. Some impressive. I'm preaching to the choir in this second uh, adjective, too. It's upper. Now, literally, they're often in these houses in Jerusalem, an upper space. There'd be an, out, an exterior uh, staircase that would get up to that room. Uh, a little up above the, the din and noise of the streets below, uh, away from the, the stink and smell of what's taking place there. You maybe get a little air flow, wind, in that second story space. Is this on a roof? Is it enclosed? That's yeah, a room, so yeah, it seems like it. But it's upper. Now, for us, again, if we're trying to liken all scriptures to us, that it might be for our profit and learning. The space that I carve out for Jesus, whether that's time to worship, or time to work for Him, time to serve, or time to sacrifice. If it's time to go to the temple, time to magnify a calling, time to study your scriptures. One, is it large, but two, is it upper in terms of our priorities? Is it 
at the top of our to-do list. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be the first thing we do in the morning, although that is a great way to start the day. I'm just saying uppermost so that it doesn't get squeezed out by other things. Because then all of a sudden our room keeps getting small, our, our large room gets smaller and smaller and our upper priority keeps getting moved lower and lower on the list until nightfall comes and we're so exhausted that if we do study scripture, oh, it's a verse or two. It's skim over it so we can get to bed. It's mumble a quick and thoughtless prayer as my head is hitting the pillow. No, whenever we do it, it needs to be a higher priority than that and make sure we give God some upper room. He does for us. Now, if that's the large and the upper, how about the furnished? There's a great verse in one of the letters to Timothy where it talks about being thoroughly furnished for every good work. Am I furnished? Do I have the things, the furnishings that I'll need? This goes back to the golden calf and what do we do with our money, the spoils of Egypt? Do we make golden calves or do we make tabernacle furnishings? Because for the house of the Lord, we're going to need a, a candle stand so light can, be, can prevail. We're going to need a table of showbread, a table of the witness. We're going to need an altar of incense so we can spell some, smell some spikenard as we enter the presence of God. We're going to need an ark to hold our covenants. That's thoroughly furnished. Now, literally for a Passover meal, <laughs> what kind of furnishings do we need? It's typically called a triclinium, kind of three tables, low set to the ground so that you can lie on your side, feet extending outward. That's where feet are exposed for anointing, <laughs> right? Uh, but leaning towards and then eating on, this, on these tables. And three, forming a square with one side open, so that the servants can come and have access to, to, that, to the sides of the tables where they can keep replenishing the, the food, keep pouring the wine. Is this, are you picturing this? This is a well-furnished upper large room. And we want it all laid out well so that the Passover can proceed as planned. In the temple, how is it furnished? Are, is, is the sacrament meeting furnished well? If you think about how even something like our scripture study is furnished, do we have scriptures open? Do we have pen and paper at hand so that we can write down notes and record the treasures that God gives us? Or are we just swine kicking around pearls that drop until they no longer drop from heaven? No, we can do a lot more to furnish things. It actually makes me wonder about that verse in Matthew 12 where Jesus talks about the person so-called repenting, casting out the evil spirit. But then what does he do with his room? He leaves it empty, swept, and garnished. Mm, not furnished at all. And therefore, what does the evil spirit do after it's wandered around dry places for a while? It just comes right back, bringing seven worse sins, worse spirits in tow. Oh no, you better furnish this room so that the Lord has plenty of space for himself, but the adversary has no room to enter. Okay, It's got to say, no vacancy, not the opposite. And then the fourth and final adjective, prepared. It's one thing to furnish the room, but on top of that, to prepare it well. 
Is the Passover lamb prepared? How about the bitter herbs? Oh, Jesus will soon know bitterness. How about the haroset, which represents the mortar? That's the, the, the better stuff <laughs> uh, to wash down the, the horseradish. What about the cups of wine, the seat of Elijah? What? What? Or even beyond the room itself, are we prepared? The sacrament table may be well furnished. And sacrament meeting may be time cut or set aside, carved out, elevated in our week. But are we prepared when we enter? Or are we just rushing in, <laughs> hoping to get there in time for the sacrament to be passed? Oh no, to come prepared. That was Alma's word in Alma 32, when he saw an audience that was unprepared and then turned and recognized the real audience that was in a preparation to hear the Word of God. Again, there's so many ways we can think of that and, and apply these four adjectives to our temple's worship and our uh, sacrament meeting attendance and, and magnifying our callings and everything else it might be. If Just since we study Scripture so much here, Think about those four in those terms. Do I give scripture study enough time? Do I elevate it in my list of priorities? Am I furnished with pencil or pen, with things to mark with, ways to record impressions? And am I prepared? Have I prayed before I open my scriptures? Am I prepared to pause and ponder? Am I prepared to act on the things that I learn? If so, who's coming to this up large, upper, furnished, prepared room? Jesus is. To have a communal meal with you. You're about to have an experience with Jesus like you've never had before. The age-old Passover is about to become a brand new experience. The Last Supper is about to become the first communion. And you're about to see in Jesus things you've never seen and experience with him things you've never experienced before. There's something magnificent about this because there is another phrase. Recall what he said. It's not just a large upper room furnished and prepared. He said, that's where you'll go. But once you go there, what are you supposed to do? There, make ready the Passover. And if we'll make everything as ready as we can, Jesus will come. And we'll be prepared to receive him. It's there that we'll turn to the events themselves of the Last Supper. So far, we've been preparing for it. And now, hopefully, fully prepared, we can partake with Jesus of this, at this Passover meal. Now, it's hard to nail down the chronology here. It's, it's really difficult. Because you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talking about the Last Supper, but not including the same details of what took place there. As usual, John is the odd man out. And John, for example, doesn't talk about the sacrament. That's shocking. In a way, he already did. 
in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, Jesus talked very clearly to the people that, yeah, they, your fathers ate manna from heaven, but now they're dead. What I'm offering you as the true bread of life is bread that you'll, that you'll never hunger again. But the bread I refer to, you're looking at. I am that bread of life. And then he talks even more, I mean, it would have been striking for the people who listened to him. My body is the bread and my blood is the water. What? Yeah, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And they're really confused. Okay, hard sayings, who can hear them? And they leave. That's John 6. So John does hint at sacramental kinds of things earlier. But when he gets to the Last Supper, he doesn't talk about it at all. Instead, what he talks about is the washing of the feet, which the synoptics don't talk about. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the focus is on the sacrament. They don't talk about the washing of feet at all. So part of the tricky thing here, as far as chronology is concerned, is when did which thing happen? Because there's no way of completely knowing since they don't mention. Does this, does this make sense? Well, no, it doesn't make sense. That's, but does the lack of making sense make sense? And why it's so hard to nail it down exactly when these things occur? For our purposes here, we're not going to worry too much about strict chronology since we don't know for sure. And we'll let the scholars argue about evidences of this and then that, but was it before this? And then who are you asking? And I don't know. And we'll go in the following order, okay? And there's going to be some theological reasons why. We're going to start with an argument the apostles have over superiority. And that would make sense if you're coming to dinner and, I mean, there's no little place, you know, name tag, you know, there's seats assigned. And remember what Jesus already said about when you get invited, please don't fight and argue over who gets the best seat in the house. Certainly don't go take it yourself and then have somebody better than you come in and then the host has to awkwardly ask you to move and you end up in the lowest seat. Okay, Jesus has already taught about that. And, and here, it, maybe they need a refresher because, it does, because they do argue over preeminence and superiority. We've seen that before. Remember James and John and their sweet mother, uh, who gets to sit on your right hand and who on your left? Well, now's a chance to literally sit on Jesus' right and left hand. And who's going to take the spots? Who's got pole position? It, it does seem to me, at least, that this argument would likely be one of the very first things as they're coming into this large, upper, well-prepared, uh, furnished room. Okay? So we're going to start with that. After that, we're going to go to the washing of the apostles' feet. Again, we don't know if that's what happened next, but I'm going to put it next because what better way to illustrate what Jesus is trying to teach the apostles in helping them overcome their pride and self-centeredness, uh, their sense of superiority that they're arguing over. <laughs> Who gets the best seat? Why don't I take the least seat? and wash your feet. So that's what we're going to do next. After that, we are going to see Jesus announce his betrayal. We saw Judas already leave to go orchestrate it, but that was in the absence of the multitude. Well, in the presence of his fellow apostles, Jesus is going to call this out. After which, Judas will leave and then will study the sacrament. In some ways, what we're seeing here is back and forth, back and forth between 
spiritual and natural man. And to me, that seems a lot like life as well. That we have these incredible spiritual moments and then they get interrupted by the emergence of the natural man. And we, we fall back down to our lower level and how can I do this in the midst of this, these incredible experiences? Well, again, welcome to human nature. And welcome to mortal life where the pendulum seems to swing back and forth between God and mammon between heaven and hell, between arguing and then Jesus condescending, between betraying and partaking of the sacrament. To me, the Last Supper in this order is so true to, to form as far as the ups and downs of life that we all endure. Then we'll finish with Jesus giving one last thought to the apostles before they head off to the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't fit that picture perfectly. Next week, we'll spend our entire lesson on John. 14, 15, 16, 17. It's a masterpiece, and only John gives it to us. Uh, but some of what we see in the lead-in to John 14, end of 13 today, uh, complicates some of the chronology, and we'll handle that next week. Okay? So, you with me? This is what we're going to do with the order of events in the Last Supper. And we will start with Jesus expressing how deeply he desired to share this common meal. This is Luke chapter 22, verse 14 and 15. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Oh, before I suffer. I just want to share a meal. It will be my last. And though this is Thursday and he will not die until Friday. In some ways, this is the, the last meal of a condemned man. And when we think of that in terms of ex people in prison waiting for, ex for their execution, we always talk about, oh, I'm going to eat as much as I possibly can, and it's all about the stuff that they're consuming. In Jesus' case, yes, the meal itself will be important because it's so symbolic, right? All the elements that point them to the original Passover in Egypt. But what Jesus is more focused on is the company. I just want to eat this Passover with you. My closest 12, those that have joined with me and accompanied me these last three years, these, those who, who know me best and hopefully love me most, in a way I'm looking for an aftermath of the anointing from Mary, that calming spikenard, that relaxed atmosphere before I suffer later this very night. Notice, by the way, the double desire. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover. There's an intensity there, the double desire. There, in fact, if you look at the Greek word for that, it's interesting because it's the same word that's used in a negative way for things like covetousness and even lust. 
When you're coveting something, oh, I just want that so bad. I can't stop thinking about it. And when you're lusting, ooh, that's even worse where there's just this longing. And that's what Jesus is feeling, although in the perfectly pure and positive way. There's no covetousness. There's no lust here. But there is a longing. His heart being drawn out in the deepest of desires to spend this last Passover with his friends. How how deeply do we desire to commune with the Lord? How desperately do we long to be with him? That will affect the kind of room we carve out for him. Large or small, upper or lower, prepared or unprepared, furnished or absolutely bare. That will determine if we have made ourselves ready for the experience. Sadly, I think too often, and I'm guilty of this, I'm showing the Lord less than a double desire. Less than a longing, a heartfelt desire to be with him. And that's something I can change. I want to change. And what better time to change it than Passover? Lambs pointing to the Lamb of God. Blood on the doorposts and lintel. We're thinking Egypt tonight. We're thinking freedom from bondage. We're thinking death of the firstborn. You remember the cleansing of the leper? That incredible ritual from Leviticus 14? The ritual that Jesus kept sending the lepers to do whenever he cleansed them? Remember among the other elements, the bird in the clay pot, spirit entering flesh, held out over the stream, the living water, the death of one bird so the other bird could fly free. But you remember the other element that was part of it? Scarlet material, hyssop plant, and cedar wood. And that those three things, those three elements wrapped together around the living bird, that's the mini, that's the Passover in miniature. The cedar wood, there's the doorposts and lintel. The scarlet material, there's the blood around the door. Hyssop, that plant used as the paintbrush to get the lamb's blood on that wood. Passover, we, talk, we studied this in depth last year. And talk about a moment for your eyes to open. Later, when we get to Luke 24, we'll see Jesus break bread and perform a sacrament of sorts for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, whereby their eyes open and they finally recognize who Jesus is, who was sitting before them. The apostles here are meant to have a similar experience. And like I said before, to do something so old, they've been doing Passover meals since childhood. The Jews have been doing this for a thousand years plus. But to infuse the old with new life, to breathe deeper meaning, we've got to learn to do that with a sacrament. Otherwise, we go through the motions because we do it week after week after week. We've got to do that in the temple. Otherwise, the endowment session is the same thing it was the last time we came. But to experience it in such a way that our eyes can open and we see beyond the symbol 
the fulfillment of all of those symbols. That's what needs to happen tonight. With all the double desire that Jesus feels, you need to see these things and see me like you've never seen them before. Are you prepared? Well, yes and no. They've come. They're ready for Passover. Has it fully dawned on them that this really is the last supper they'll ever spend with Jesus? Or is it just, hey, great chance this is a holiday, Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving feast? Yeah, no wonder those always begin with such high hopes and are interspersed with such oh, human problems. You ever gotten in a fight over Thanksgiving dinner? You ever had some friction at family reunions? Well, that's exactly what erupts next. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. There was also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? And like I said, picking your spot to sit is a good time for this to happen. Well, it's never a good time for this to happen, and Jesus chides them for it. He says unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye, oh, come on, ye, ye shall not be so. Instead, how is it supposed to be among us, among true disciples? He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He that is chief, as he that doth serve. Jesus has already taught this, and he already taught it in a very similar way. The first time that they went through this, he told them, this is what Gentiles do. And here he says it again, Gentiles exercise lordship in this way. Unrighteous dominion, the nature and disposition of almost all men. I'm not asking you to be almost. I'm asking you to be different. I'm not asking you to be a Gentile. I'm asking you to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And that means lowering yourself. Instead of fighting over the best seat in the house, step, stepping back and suggesting that other people take the place of honor. Oh, we've got some changing to do. I don't know if you remember, I talked about this when I used the example of changing football by altering the definition of victory and that if you define success in football by time of possession instead of by number of points then the entire strategy of the game changes like 180 turn it on its head complete opposite game plan without changing a single rule just because we've defined victory in a different way well again comparing gentile to true disciple Comparing the world, Babylon, to Zion. The world seems to care about the letter P. If this were brought to you by Sesame Street. The letter P focuses on things like pride and power and prestige and possessions and prosperity. Are there other P's you can think of in a negative light? That's the definition of victory in the world. Meanwhile, in Zion, we don't care about P's. We care about F's. Primarily, we care about faith and we care about family. And if we really do, it's going to change the way we play the game. 
And so for Jesus to say to his apostles here, guys, that's not the game we're playing. Don't be like everyone else who cares who's first in importance. I don't, and neither should you. So he says to them in verse 27, For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Which side of the triclinium do the important people go on? The, the masters of the house that are there reclining, leaning in? Or those servants who come in through the fourth open wall and spend their time in service to their betters? Well, as Jesus said, is not he that sitteth at meat? At least that's what everybody thinks. But, he says, I am among you as he that serveth. He's the one serving. He's the one that wants to enter the triclinium from the other side. We talked about this in Luke chapter 12 last week. That when the master of the house comes home early, <laughs> unannounced, thief in the night, but finds his servants prepared, watching, waiting, ready, large, upper, furnished, prepared, then what does the Lord, what does the master do? Instead of making his servants serve him, he role reverses and the master serves the servants instead. Here we see it actually happening. Jesus has come to serve them. This is true servant leadership. And nobody embodies it better than Jesus. He is willing to, in fact, he's, he's about to fully lose himself in service to others. That's what Gethsemane and Calvary entail. And by losing himself, he's about to find the most divine version of himself imaginable. For him to teach similar things to these apostles, if you're just willing to lose yourself in service to others, you will find a better version of yourself than you could possibly be. The way he says it in verse 28 through 30, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And the Greek word there means trials. And that could be either trials like tribulation and adversity. They've been through plenty of that. It's only going to get worse. Or it could be trials in terms of tests and experiences. And they've had plenty of those as well. For the last three years, you've continued with me. You've been enduring it well. Don't give up now. Okay, Overcome this temptation. Pass this test. He says, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in a way, that passage seems slightly out of context, but in another way, it's so perfect for the moment. Why are you arguing over where you're going to sit around this little table, this tiny triclinium, when you've got thrones awaiting you on the other side? But if I am going to trust you with a throne... Oh, you better not be sitting on it in order to look down at the people you are called upon to judge. It better be righteous judgment. It better be humble judgment. The kind I did with the woman taken in adultery when I bowed down, stooped, and started writing in the dust. I lowered myself to the level of the woman that had been thrown at my feet. I'm trying to prepare you for a throne in such a way that that throne won't go to your head. That's hard to come by. 
And so for you, please do not fight over preeminence here at the Last Supper. One infinitely greater than you is, is willing to descend below all things. And that's exactly what he does next. If we allow for the chronology to then turn to the washing of the apostles' feet. This is a glorious moment as well. Like I said, this is an echo of Mary's moment, either yesterday or a few days ago, when she anoints the Savior's feet. Well, now Jesus is going to wash the feet of his apostles. And it's only in John. John doesn't talk about the strife, but he talks about the washing of the feet. Luke talks about the strife, but doesn't talk about the washing. So somehow we're just going to put these together. And in my mind, this would be the perfect segue. As Jesus coming down from his throne, his seat of preeminence, to be the servant of all. This is John chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. This is couching the entire episode of the Last Supper, by the way, in the subject of love. John 13 is where he begins the Last Supper narrative. And he starts it with a focus on the Lord's love. I loved you from the beginning. I will love you unto the end as an evidence of my love. Now that I know that my hour has come and my chance to show you that love is... I won't have many many opportunities yet to do so. This is my chance to do it. Love will be his central theme in the book of John as he talks about the the Last Supper and his sermon after supper that we'll study next week. So focus on love here and keep an eye out for it ever after. But again, as I said before, here's an amazing experience interrupted with a very hard moment or two. John then says, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, this is the context that we see for the washing of the feet in the John account. The love of Jesus, the wickedness of one of his own, and caught between those two, what does he choose to do? He leans in the direction of love. I know what Judas is about to do, but even before he does it, may I express even to him an act of humility, an act of service, and most importantly, an act of love. There's, there's something profound about the fact that Judas is still here. He'll leave in a moment, but that he's here and that Jesus, that the way John describes this, wants to make sure that we know what Judas is about to do and that the devil has entered into him. But the love of God is fully infused in Jesus. Amazing context for what's about to happen, which you then see in verse 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself, 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, that's the sum total of the experience. We're going to see a conversation about it in a moment between Jesus and Peter and then Jesus and the rest. But it's amazing how quickly that story is encapsulated in the text. And so much of it was lead-in. I mean, most of what we just read was not the actual moment of the washing. Think, for example, about how Jesus began, or how John begins this. He talks about Jesus knowing who he was. That he'd come from the Father, that he was about to go to the Father. And, and knowing that, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took the towel, he did, he, he did this incredible act. Now, that's to me the amazing thing, the way John contextualizes it. Because for someone to lower himself in a way that's not humiliating, see, that's, that's what keeps us from doing it. I don't want to do that. People are going to think less of me. And in some ways, that's evidence you think less of yourself. You're afraid that people are going to think less of you. Are you that insecure? Well, yeah, usually. But not Jesus. What allows the greatest of all to descend beneath them all is the fact that he absolutely knew who he was. I came from God as his firstborn son in the spirit and his only begotten son in the flesh. I know who I am and whose I am. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. I am so secure in my identity and purpose that I can lower myself without a second thought. <laughs> There's no insecurity here. And I, I think one of the great ways to become more humble and more willing to, to sit in the lowest seat is to be self-assured. Not in a prideful way, but knowing our identities. This is back to what Elder or President Nelson has said so clearly. The most important identities we can hold to children of God, children of the covenant, disciples of Christ. And if I can hold to that, then who cares if people hate me? Who cares if people mock me? Who cares if they try to humiliate me? I'm immune to that. And Jesus is showing that here. I will take the place of a servant because I know I'm the Son of God. I will descend I'm okay with condescension because I understand ascension. I've been there. That's where I'm going. Yeah, that makes sense. There's something profound here. And then what he ends up doing next is so... It's such an amazing teaching moment to help them see. Don't think of yourselves as better. Don't fight or argue over preeminence. Lower yourself. Uh, but also serve one another. Bless one another. Help one another. But beyond that, there's something symbolic about the way he does it. Notice again the details from John. He laid aside his garments, this outer robe, and girded himself with a towel. He's not only going to act the part of a servant, he's going to look the part of a servant. That's how servants come in, just kind of slave attire. In some ways, though, think of the symbolism of condescension all over again. 
that Christ himself was willing to lay aside his garments of premortal glory. The garments of his godliness. This is the word, but he's the word now made flesh and dwelling among us. The greatest of all becoming the least among them and laying aside his garments. That's something profound there. Then this other element, he takes the towel and he girds himself with it. I've tried to pay close attention to all the paintings of this moment that I've ever seen. And I'm not sure if I've, how many I've seen that do it accurately. Because usually, I mean, it has the basin correct, and it has the water in the basin, and then it has Jesus wiping those feet with a towel over the basin. So far, so good. But if Jesus is merely holding the towel the way like that we would, we typically think of some kind of hand towel or dishcloth or something, and you just wash the feet that way. But that's not how John describes it. And he was there. He said Jesus girded himself with the towel. Picture like a longer towel and almost girding up your loins with it, tying it around yourself as if it were some kind of belt almost. And, and then lowering yourself and taking the edge of this towel and wiping the feet of your apostles with a towel that you were wearing. That's absolutely important here. You need to understand, first of all, at how disgusting the apostles' feet probably were. In a time before completely paved, I mean, the Romans did great with their roads, but not everything was paved. And if you're wearing sandals instead of closed-toed shoes, think how dusty and dirty your feet will be. This is probably old leather, uh, it's probably hot days, walking long distances under the Judean sun, so your feet are sweaty. Picture the dust and dirt being ground into the bottom of them as your feet kind of slide along that leather where sweat and dirt and dust. This is not a day of incredible personal hygiene. Uh, how often do you bathe? This is a day with, without indoor or outdoor plumbing, no plumbing at all. And since everyone has so many animals to care for, where there's no toilets to flush, is there even an outhouse? Uh, do owners pick up after their animals? The, the, the streets of Jerusalem, the the... The pathways of Palestine, they, that would have been pretty disgusting on the feet. I guess you get used to it. Maybe that, I've always often joked that the, the beauty of campfire, fire is such a strong smell, but it's a relatively good one. And it would take something that strong to mask this, this disgusting scent of body odor that probably permeated everything. I'm glad the pioneers got to cook over the open fire. And glad that the ancients cooked on fire as well. That's probably the only deodorant that they knew. But to think of these disgusting feet. Jesus, no wonder slaves were the ones to do this kind of work. But for Jesus to lower himself to that level and to wash those feet with the towel 
wherewith he was girded. The reason that's so important is because dirt doesn't disappear in washing. It simply moves from one place to another. You've probably heard the old riddle, what gets wetter the more that it dries? And the beauty of that, of that riddle is the towel is the answer. It dries as an active verb, not as a passive verb. The, the, the reason the, the riddle works is because you're thinking passive. Something is drying. So if, how could it be getting wetter? No, make it an active verb. Something is doing the drying of some wet object. And so, of course, that towel that is drying something else is getting wetter. Because guess what? Water doesn't disappear. Even when it evaporates, it's just moving. But to, walk, to wipe it with a towel, it's moving from the object onto the towel that is doing the drying. Now take that reality from the riddle and apply it here. And where is all that dirt and dust and sweat and grime and filth? Where's it going? Onto a towel that Jesus is wearing. Essentially, he is staining all his raiment because of the dirt we pick up in life's journey. Do you see the atonement being pre-enacted here? We'll see this elsewhere. We saw it in the Doctrine and Covenants. We see it in several places that our blood stains Jesus' raiment while Jesus' blood purifies ours. There is a transferal the Lord does not have a magic wand where he just wipes sin away into non-existence. No, he assumes it. He internalizes it. He digests it and metabolizes it and makes it his own. No wonder he had to come down among us. No wonder word had to be made flesh. No wonder garments had to be laid aside and towels wrapped up in so that Jesus would completely know what it's like to have dusty, dirty, disgusting feet. When Isaiah said, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace. There's only way those feet can be beautiful. And that's by having them washed by someone whose feet far more beautiful than ours could ever be. No wonder the washing of the feet becomes an ordinance. Something they did in the Kirtland Temple. Something that initiates us into full fellowship with Christ. An initiatory ordinance to wash us and make us clean that the Lord would be willing to do the washing himself, knowing there's only one place for that dirt to go. There's condescension. This is love. And it's love from someone who knows perfectly who he is and what he's come to do. Now, <laughs> it's one thing for us to understand all that. Peter doesn't get it. <laughs> Peter, good old Peter, uh, bold, impetuous, open mouth, insert foot 
clean or dirty kind of Peter. Well, with his dirty foot, he's about, it, about to insert it into his mouth. And he does it in verse 6 and 7. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. Jesus had, had washed a few feet on the way. He's now at his chief apostle, ready to do the same thing. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, well, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Which is a fascinating phrase as well. It reminds me of kids who have no clue what their parents have done for them. Just how much and how long those sacrifices have gone on. Children are completely oblivious to it. What a parent does, they know not now, but they will know hereafter. It's dawning on me how much my parents did for me because of all that I'm doing for my children. So they still have no clue. And that's okay. That's part of the humility that the Lord wants us to develop. Because in reality, he's the ultimate parent in here. And we're the ultimate oblivious child. No clue just how much God has done for us. It will be an eye-opening experience in the next life to watch the director's cut of our lives and see how oh, the ministering angels surrounding us to part the veil and recognize just how much God orchestrated on our behalf that went unnoticed, unacknowledged, unappreciated on our part. Well, Peter, someday you'll get this. <laughs> Hopefully someday soon. But right now you have no clue what I'm trying to do here. What I'm embodying and pre-enacting. You don't get it. But just let me do this. But Peter doesn't want it. Verse 8 and 9, Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Which suggests what he meant by that earlier question. Dost thou wash my feet? He's like, oh, oh now over my dead body. What, what do you think you're doing there, Jesus? Is kind of the question he's implying. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now the JST softens that somewhat, for Peter's sake. There Peter simply says, thou needest not to wash my feet. So I'm glad he calmed down a little bit in the, in the inspired version. But I wonder what's going on in Peter's heart there. Thou needest not to wash my feet. This could be humility on his part. Please don't do this. I'll do this myself. This could be a sense of unworthiness and inadequacy on his part. This is the same Peter, after all. Remember when Jesus oh, caught him a boatload of fish? And Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It's like, I can't have you doing this for me because I don't deserve it. Is that same inadequacy and unworthiness prompting this conversation on Peter's part? Then again, could it be pride from below? I'm not going to let you do that to me. Because sometimes when people above us are willing to descend and serve us, we don't want it. And it's not because of our humility. It's because of our pride. I'm not going to have you do anything for me. Then I'll owe you something. And how can I pay back someone that has everything? Again, I, I don't want to pass judgment on Peter here, but uh, passing judgment on myself... Oh yeah, both of those happen. There's times I, I have a hard time accepting service because I don't feel worthy of it. Other times I have a hard time accepting service because I don't want to need the service. And it's my pride getting in the way. And yeah, it's pride from below. Well, Jesus doesn't want us to have pride from any direction. He certainly doesn't. And so Jesus responds to Peter. He answered him saying, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. If you won't let me do this, 
Do you understand what you're doing? You're standing in the way of a covenant connection. I'm trying to serve you. Please let me accept my sacrifice in your behalf. Partake of my atoning blood. Let me take your sins upon me and take them away from you. Now, again, this is where Peter is so true to form. Simon Peter, it, like, it dawns on him. Like, oh, if I don't let him do this, then I, maybe that, what, okay, maybe it is pride from below. Maybe I just, I won't accept his, what he's offering. And how can I be a true disciple if I don't take what he gives? Especially with all of its atonement symbolism. He's trying to be at one with me. I've got to let him. Well, if that's the case, then by all means. And Peter, good old Peter, saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And there we have, so true to human nature, not just the correction, but the overcorrection. A total swinging of the pendulum from one extreme to the other. That's why I talk about proving contraries all the time. We have to hold them both in active tension. Otherwise, once we realize we've been over-prioritizing one at the expense of the other, then of course, instead of correcting, we'll end up overcorrecting. Of course, we'll overswing the pendulum. And that's exactly what Peter does here. Well, the, the whole thing then, I want full immersion. And forget these other apostles that only wanted you to wash their feet. I'm all in. So go feet and, and hands and head and everything. Peter is such an all or nothing kind of a guy. And he needed to be, because so much of it is he had to be all in to, to follow in Jesus' footsteps and to keep the fledgling church intact after Christ's crucifixion. But it is interesting, he swings from the nothing to the all in just a moment. Well, Jesus, whoa, 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 easy, Tiger. <laughs> Let's get into the Goldilocks zone, shall we? Verse 10 and 11, Jesus saith to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye, speaking collectively, are clean, but not all. And then John gives us his behind-the-scenes explanation as usual. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. There's the foreshadowing of Judas. He's the stain against collective cleanliness. Which is interesting. Jesus trying to wash all the apostles' feet because you're all in this together. This is the church that I am well pleased with, speaking collectively and not individually. And the stains on one mean there's still stains on the body. I've washed the feet, but are there other body parts out of sight that Judas is trying to mask from the multitude? So yeah, you are not... All y'all, as they say in the South, are not yet clean. But back to what Jesus is saying here. There's a JST of that passage, by the way, that says, Jesus saith to him, He that has washed his hands and his head needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. And then this explanation. Now this was the custom of the Jews under their law. Wherefore Jesus did this, that the law might be fulfilled. The law says we're supposed to cleanse ourselves. And it's interesting, because remember earlier, when the Pharisees are jumping all over him, like, whoa, 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 your apostles ate dinner without washing hands. And he's like, come on. 
Dirt comes in and dirt goes out. It's fine. It's not, it's not digested. It doesn't become a part of you. It's the stuff that comes out of you that's growing out of an, a wicked human heart. That's the real problem here. But I do understand why, why you're concerned about hygiene and cleanliness and so on. It's part of ritual purity. I get that. And Jesus had come to fulfill the law, not de destroy it. And so to fulfill the law, he's washing the apostles' feet. Since supposedly they should have already washed their head and their hands. Interesting. So in some ways this is a, a pragmatic moment, since although we've already seen definitely it's a pietistic moment as well. He's doing some work, but it's a moment of worship. But I also wonder about this phrase, if you've been washed, then all you need is to wash your feet, and you're clean every whit. As far as ritual purity is concerned, head, hands, get at heart, and feet, you should be good to go. Even, clean, even cleansing the leper, that Passover miniature kind of ritual, puts blood on the ear, there's the head, and on the thumb, there's the hand, and on the toe, there's the foot. So ritually speaking, isn't that enough? Now I also wonder, and this has something to do with our history, through much of early church history, rebaptism was an option. And as a way to fully re-immerse yourself in the kingdom of God, you'd go dam another river or find another pond and you'd re-immerse. A full-on rebaptism, and that took place up until the the ministry of of Wilford Woodruff as president of the church, and it was President Woodruff that finally said, "You know, I understand the sentiment behind that, and I totally honor it, but if you have taken upon yourself the name of Christ, if you've established a covenant relationship with Him, then that relationship will hold." And to renew that relationship, all that is required is partaking of the sacrament. That's enough. And logistically, it's a whole lot easier than <laughs> rebaptism. I get a sense there in what Jesus has said if you've washed, if you've really come clean at some point in your life and participated in the saving ordinance of baptism then from here on out, all you need to do is wash your feet. Or in our case, partake of the bread and water. And it's as if you are completely clean all over again. I'm so grateful for the chance to do just that. The account then says in verse 12, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, catch that, this is condescension, now returning to re-ascension, robes of premortal glory exchanged for fallen flesh, but now ready to take it up again, put his robes of righteousness back on. He had taken his garments. He was set down again. He said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? He's, he's pushing what he said earlier. You don't get it right now. Someday you will. Let's speed up the process. Do you know what I've done? And then he starts to answer his own question. Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. By the way, that is a shift in Jesus' approach as well. Remember, he's the one earlier when they say, hey, good master. He said, whoa, 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 why are you calling me good? Nobody's good but God. Well, here he's, oh, he's stepping into that role. I am your master. I am your Lord. But if I then, 
your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. I am the ultimate servant leader, he's saying. But you, who are meant to lead in my place, you've got to become servants of all as well. I have set the ultimate example. Just like I condescended to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, and show you the example of the narrowness of the way and the humility that must be in your heart, here I am doing it again at the end of my ministry. Both baptism and washing of the feet had to do with cleanliness and purity. And there's water there. There's lowering himself there. And there's an example he's setting that he means for all of us to follow. He re-emphasizes it in verse 16 and 17. Verily, verily, so truly, truly, are you getting this? I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. In other words, if Jesus can do things that are beneath him, that's what condescension means, then why can't you? Why can't we? Who do we think we are? if we're unwilling to do that, when Jesus himself, the the distance, no one condescended further than him. And so our lesser lowerings, why can't we handle that? We've got got to humble ourselves along those lines. And then Jesus says in conclusion, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. It's exactly what King Benjamin said at the end of his incredible discourse that also spoke of humility and descending and a king becoming a servant among his subjects. And he said the same, if ye believe these things, see that ye do them. But I actually prefer the Savior's version. If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. It's not just you should, it's, it's, it's what will make you happy. Because the opposite is also true. If you know these things and don't do them, then you won't be happy because you know better. I mean, ignorance, I guess, would have been bliss. But when you know these things and you don't do them, that's when the guilt gap opens up. And I know, but I don't do. Ah, And that distance, that separation is filled with guilt over knowing that I'm not living up to expectation. I've said this before, the answer is not forgetting what we know. It's not lowering reality to meet where we happen to be. You know, it's living up. It's honoring what we know and living into it with the Savior's help. And if we do that, then yes, happy are we. Are we understanding the Last Supper so far? We're about halfway, halfway through it. This meal of meals, this desire of desires on the Savior's part. We've gone through our first round of something difficult, followed by something absolutely glorious. Human nature swinging back and forth between natural man and spiritual person. Are we ready for round two? Because this second half of the Last Supper, we will see 
weakness and fallenness and frailty. And we will also see glory and goodness and a sacramental relationship that the Lord offers to all of us. This second half of the Last Supper then begins on a bad note. Brace yourself. We see it if we turn to verse 18 and 19, still in John 13. Right on the heels of washing the feet, the very next scene, Jesus says, I speak not of you all. Remember, he's been talking about clean versus dirty and what's collective cleanliness. And yes, I've washed you, but you're still not all clean as far as all y'all are concerned. So I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes the scripture. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus was just quoting the 41st Psalm. Verse 9 of that Psalm says this, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, one of the great things about Jesus quoting Psalms, and we'll see more of this in a couple of weeks, he quotes them and hopes that you know the rest of the story. And that's the case here. His version of Psalm 41 verse 9 was really quick. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up the heel against me. But any good Jewish boy who was raised in the synagogue and had his bar mitzvah when he was young, oh, I know that verse. What else was that? Oh, yeah, my own familiar friend, someone that I trusted. He doesn't even have to say those words. And the reality of the illusion is weighing on Judas it's weighing on the other apostles. Wait a minute. One of your own trusted friends? Somebody who ate, who broke bread with you? There's something significant about sharing a meal. And that's exactly what they're doing in this moment. They probably shared hundreds of meals up till now. But this last of all, the greatest of all of their meals together, there's something about breaking bread that creates relationships, and usually relationships of trust. And someone that I've eaten with is now lifting up the heel against me. Now, who wrote the 41st Psalm? King David. And who's he referring to? Most likely, and we talked about this last year in the Old Testament, but most likely this is during the, the rebellion of Absalom. Now, Absalom is David's son, but his son has turned against him and ends up driving David out of the kingdom. Now, a lot of David's servants, counselors, uh, aides, uh, generals were loyal to him. And so when he left, they went with him, but not Ahitophel. Ahitophel was one of David's counselors. He was one of his friends. He trusted him. I mean, as a counselor, that's what you do. You trust the... You don't want a counselor you can't believe in. And yet Ahitophel, who had eaten bread with David in the palace throughout his reign, lifted up his heel against David and sided with Absalom instead. And in fact, gave Absalom some of the most devious counsel imaginable. It was only thanks to David's wisdom in sending one of his other counselors back, like almost like a, a double agent, 
no, pretend that you're on Absalom's side. You can do me more good in, uh, next to Absalom than here next to me. And since Ahitophel, the other counselor, is still there and he's truly against me, then you somehow need to balance out and contradict Ahitophel's counsel. You've got to overcome it. And that's exactly what this loyal servant does. Uh, much to David's defense and, it, and much to Ahitophel's anger. You know, again, I won't belabor the point with all the details of that. But do you understand what Jesus is hinting at here? Judas? You're Ahitophel, and I, the son of David, is King David revisiting the throne. I can't believe that you would do this to me. And yet, the interesting phrase there when he quotes this scripture, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, wait a minute, was Psalm 41 messianic? I mean, I guess so, looking after the fact, but... Only in retrospect. At the time, it's not prophesying. It's just, it's not telling the future. It's just stating the present. This is what happened with Ahitophel and David. It's Jesus that turns it into a prophecy because he sees its repetition in his own life. And so now it's that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, some people take that and think, oh, wait a minute. So he had to do it. The Judas was supposed to fulfill prophecy. And so since the prophecy was that somebody would betray Jesus, then, oh, poor Judas to be set up for this. Jesus picked him just to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. Don't go there. Like I said, in immediate context, it wasn't a prophecy. Jesus is just seeing a repetition of what happened in the past, now happening in the future. It actually reminds me of that great passage in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. Remember this one? Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. In other words, yeah, somebody's going to do something stupid. Don't be that guy. That's what I get from that passage. Of course, offenses are going to come. That's human nature. Oh, but woe to the one that gives in to that human nature. Accidents happen. Be careful not to be the cause of the accident. Yes, if Judas didn't betray me, someone else would. That's, like I said, fallen human nature. And people turn against me. We've seen that throughout Christ's ministry. People still do that. Don't be that guy. Judas was not set up for failure. If anything, Jesus was trying to set him up for success, knowing the weakness of Judas's flesh. Maybe if I can keep him close for three years, maybe that'll be enough for him to change. And yet it wasn't. And now Jesus knows it, and he's calling it out and saying to Judas and the rest, now I know how David felt when one of his own closest friends, one of his close confidants, someone he trusted, someone he broke bread with is now lifting up the heel against him. Now lest we condemn Judas, on the one hand I'm not trying to excuse him by saying, oh, it's just fulfillment of prophecy. On the other hand, I'm not trying to condemn him. And we'll talk more about this 
in two weeks. But I'm not trying to condemn him fully because I am him. And so are you. I think what we hate about Judas is the fact that we are Judas and we hate certain things about ourselves because we know we can't be happy in those things because I know better and I'm not living up to it. If you take the language that Jesus uses there, borrowed from the 41st Psalm, then we're all indicted here. If you couple it with a verse from 1 Nephi. 1 Nephi 19.7, think of this. For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul. Body, there's pragmatism. Soul, there's pietism. Well, those that value that, there's plenty who do. Great worth. However, others set at naught and trample under their feet. They, they think they're so worthless that it's like the salt that's lost its savor. They just tra- trample it down under their own feet. Now, he intensifies it in the next phrase. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. And lest we get shocked oh, into complacency by that intensification, thinking, whoa, 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 the very God of Israel? I would never do that. I would never trample Jesus under my feet. Lest we reassure ourselves falsely along those lines, notice what Nephi says next. Fine, let me spell this out. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. So let me clarify my metaphor. They set him at naught and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. That's what I mean by trampling the God of Israel under their feet. Ignoring him, dismissing him, disobeying him, denying him, betraying him. Now do you see the faint resemblance of Judas when you look in the mirror? Two parts. Number one, do you ever break bread with Jesus? Have you ever eaten bread with him? Especially sacramental bread, meaning he trusts you and you are a familiar friend. And yet, despite that sacramental bread, do we ever lift up the heel against him? Do we ever set at naught his words or hearken not to his counsel? Every time we disobey, it's a betrayal. Because we said we wouldn't. We covenanted in a moment of immersion, full cleanliness, and recommitting every sacramental meal to always remember him, to keep his commandments which he's given us, to be willing to fully take upon ourselves his name. And yet at times we want to take that name off and off in the absence of the multitude do some inconvenient things out of our sense of convenience. No, we don't always remember him. We sometimes force ourselves to forget. And we don't keep his commandments. In Nephi's stark language, we are trampling him under our feet. And with the illusion of the 41st Psalm, we're Ahitophel, or John 13, 
where Judas. I'm so grateful Jesus was willing to wash even Judas' feet. One more evidence of love. Can we try again? Will you renew your commitment? Which one are you going to end on since we seem to keep swinging back and forth between the two? Is it going to be spiritual or natural man? Is it going to be washing feet or arguing over preeminence? Is it going to be sacrament or is it going to be prophecies of betrayal? Will you, which will you end on? Which more fully describes who you really are? Is it the trampling under the feet or is it the breaking of bread? We're about to see the sacrament, the bread broken. That's what we need to hold on to. That's what we need to end on. That's what we need to infuse ourselves with. But what will Judas do? Well, go to verse 19. John 13, 19, I hinted at this last week. When we talked about the signs of the times, particularly the deceptive ones. In John 13, 19, Jesus says, right on the heels of giving them this shock and awe announcement that someone who eats bread with me is about to lift up the heel against me. He says in 19, now I tell you before it come that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Now he's about to get even more clear about what's about to happen. He hints at it by quoting the verse. He spells it out in a verse to come. But right there in between the two, it's amazing what he says. I tell you this before it comes. And why am I doing that? So you'll believe. So that when it does happen, it doesn't shake your faith. It actually confirms it instead. That's what we meant last week. By Jesus is describing the deception of the elect and saying, I tell you this before. When you see other people leaving the faith, don't go with them. Don't let that be something that shakes you and you wonder, well, what are they doing that I don't know? And, I'm, and are they right? And am I wrong? No. Sadly, they're fulfilling a negative prophecy. Sadly, it's, it's right on time. And Jesus told us this in advance so we'd be prepared for it. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't shake our faith. It would hurt our heart. There's no avoiding that. But it wouldn't shake our faith. It would confirm it. It's happening just like he said. Same thing here. Later tonight, when we're in the darkness of the garden, and an even deeper darkness penetrates it when Judas comes with his little army, you're going to freak out and start wondering, how could Jesus not see this coming? I did see it coming. You should have too, because I told you. I told you in advance so that you would believe in the very moment. It's amazing what he's saying here, calling attention to the fact that he's prophesying. And then the prophecy is made all the more clear. Verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. That's as clear as I can get it. The scriptural illusion may have been lost on you. Maybe you slept through that day of synagogue. So crystal clear. 
Breaking bread, that's what we're doing right now. Lift up the heel, that's what one of you is about to do to me. The betrayal of one of my trusted friends. Now do you understand? Now, they maybe do a little more, but not entirely. We'll see that in the aftermath of that statement. But can I pause here for a moment and wrestle with the first verse? It made, the story makes sense more sense without verse 20. If we just jump from verse 18 and 19 about the, the bread and the heel, uh, jump to verse 19, I'm telling you this in advance so you'll believe, then skip ahead to 21, one of you is going to betray me. What's up with verse 20, though? The way he said it, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. If you receive me, you receive him that sent me. Jesus has said that a bunch of times. It's in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood, section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you receive the servants, it's the same as receiving the Lord. If you receive the Lord, you receive the Father. If you receive the Father, he'll eventually give you all that he has. That's the promise. And Jesus has said similar language several times in the New Testament. It's whether my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. So if you receive them, you're receiving me. It's great. Why bring that up again in this context? I think the phrase that starts verse 21 gives us a clue. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit. That, that's the thing that hurts most. That's what's most troubling to me. Not the simple fact that one of you is going to betray me. Who am I not to be betrayed? I'm willing to condescend below all. As part of my perfect empathy, I am willing to go through betrayal from someone closest to you. Anyone whose spouse has committed adultery, Jesus knows how you feel. Anyone who's ever been betrayed by someone that they trusted, maybe that's what he meant by the scriptures must be fulfilled. Not Judas had to do what Judas did. No, I had to go through what I went through. Because part of my perfect condescension, part of my descending below all things, was knowing what that feels like, up close and personal. And that is troubling to me, to think that other people would have to go through something like that. But maybe even more troubling is the thought that you might that you might be betrayed by someone that's actually meant to bless you. That you might be led away from me by the very person that was called to lead you in my direction. As I ponder this, I think that's what he's getting at with that verse in verse 20. Why else bring up the thought of, wait, he, if you receive a servant, you're receiving me, and if you receive me, you receive the Father. Ah, oh, Judas, how dare you? How dare you? Fine, you do it to me. Leave it at that, and I can handle it. 
But the effect that those kinds of acts of betrayal would have upon the least of these, the little ones that you are thereby offending. Remember when Jesus talks about that? Better that a millstone be hung around somebody's neck than you betray, or excuse me, offend one of these little ones? Well, betraying Jesus is an offense to the little ones who follow him. And if it's done by someone who's put in a position of authority, then all the more damning. If people receive you, Judas, they're doing it because they wanted to receive me. Remember we saw that in John 12 about Philip? The only reason people want Philip is because they know Philip can take them to Jesus. Sir, they desired him saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. They understood accepting a servant is accepting the Lord, and accepting the Lord is accepting the Father. These are divine dominoes falling. But if the first domino, if someone approaches that servant expecting them to take them to the Lord, and instead they take them away from the Lord, no wonder Jesus is troubled in spirit. We cannot afford to do damage to fellow disciples when we are called to lead them to Christ. I know that priesthood leaders and release study presidencies and ministers, anyone in authority, I know that we're not perfect. I will always be grateful that in the Ark of the Covenant, covered by the mercy seat, was Aaron's rod. Symbolic of the fact that Jesus even covers mistakes of leadership. And I, uh, I have a, f a firm testimony of that. However, woe unto us if we offend a little one. If because of what we have done, people are turned away from Jesus because they've been turned away from us. That's what Alma was so dis dis frustrated, troubled about when it came to Corianton's mistake as a missionary. This is Alma 39. We went to go redeem the Zoramites, and yet you showed them a bad example, and now they won't believe the good example that I'm trying to set. You and your misdeed have trumped my testimony, and they won't accept me because of you. Imagine Jesus saying something like that to one of his servants. Oh yeah, that's troubling. You better believe it. We have a sacred burden to bear and we better bear it well. Now, from that moment, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about Jesus' prophecy of the betrayal. I want to go through them one by one because there's some fascinating differences. The Luke version is the least detailed. It's really straightforward. This is chapter 22, verse 21 to 23. And this is all he says. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So again, we're back to the offenses will come, but please don't be that guy. Okay? Then Luke says, And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Now, that's vague. We don't know exactly how they're asking the questions. They're inquiring among themselves, which means they're either asking themselves kind of internal thought, or they're 
whispering to whoever they're sitting next to around this triclinium, what they're inquiring among themselves. And the question is, which of them could possibly do that? Now, hold on to the vagueness. We don't know if they're looking inward or outward. They're just looking. Now, turn to Matthew and Mark. And both of those accounts are more clear, and they specify that the look was inward. In Mark 14, 19, for example, they began to be sorrowful. In the Matthew version, it's even more intense. They began to be exceeding sorrowful. Everybody's devastated by this thought. One of us? Really? The closest 12? Not only have we all eaten broken bread with Jesus, we've all broken bread with each other. This is a band of brothers forged in the furnace of affliction. How How could there be a betrayer among us? So sorrowful, exceeding sorrowful. And they began to say unto him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Now it's Mark that says they asked him one by one. It's Matthew that says that every one of them asked the question. So combine the two, and 12 for 12, one after the other after the other, turns to Jesus in horrified disbelief in exceeding sorrow but asks introspectively it couldn't possibly be me could it now we love this story because it's so humble on their part it's so altruistic it's so self-reflective lord is it i I I love that phrase. We all should. And that's how we should approach things. Anytime there's a problem, we should ask, Lord, is it I? Joseph Smith taught that. He said at one point, if, if I ever get attacked, and boy, he knew what it meant to be attacked. He said, I always ask myself, have I done anything to give them that kind of impression or to justify that kind of response? And usually if I think hard enough, I realize, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm partially to blame here. In other words, Joseph was saying, Lord, is it I? And he recommended the same approach to all of us. It's, it's, it's so important that we do that. It will help us avoid condemning another party harshly when we're partly to blame ourselves. If there's friction in your marriage, if there's friction in your class or quorum, if there's friction at work, if, if we're the ones that needed President Nelson's talk from last conference about overcoming contention and disputation, and yes, that was for all of us, he said so, then the question, Lord, is it I, should be the first thing on our lips. Okay? Hold, hold that. But then open your hand for something else. Don't drop it to grab something else. We have to do both. Okay, we got to prove a contrary here because this is a really powerful one. Luke presents us with the possibility of either. They're just wondering, how, how could this happen? Who could do this? Matthew and Mark, it's introspective. Lord, is it I? But John? John's account is absolutely essential to hold in tension with Matthew and Mark's. Because in John's account, it's not Lord, is it I? In John's, it's Lord, who is it? Is it him? We don't remember that. We don't 
acknowledge it. We don't recognize it because it's, it's not as altruistic as Matthew and Mark. It's more natural man, but we've seen plenty of that today at the Last Supper. It's more, uh, it should be beneath us, right? But here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. Turn with me to John 13 and go to verse 22. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. It's like, this, is that even possible? Now, there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, that's how John refers to himself, beginning at this point. Remember how Lazarus was referred by Martha and the servants as one whom Jesus loved? Well, John must have picked up on that and loved it. And he's like, ooh, that's good. That's how I want to, who cares who I am? It's whose I am that matters. And rather than talk about myself, I'd rather talk about, I'd rather, oh, my identity in terms of connection to Christ. I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's how he refers to himself. So he's sitting next to Jesus. Or better said, more accurately, reclining at the triclinium next to Jesus. That's why that phrase is so odd, that he was leaning on Jesus's bosom. Uh, Renaissance painters, when they try to show this, it's kind of strange. It's, it's like invading personal space and like hugging Jesus as he's sitting at the table. No, that's at a, at a triclinium, low to the ground, and everyone leaning, they're usually leaning on their left arm, kind of facing to the right, and that way with their right hand they can be eating, t taking things off the table, lifting their cup, drinking and putting it back, and so on, okay? Now, if the person to your right is right next to you, and they just kind of lean back to ask you a question, then for all intents and purposes, what have they just done? They have leaned into your bosom. It's just looking back. And so that's what John must have sat, uh, at, reclined at the Savior's right. And somewhere else around the table, there was Simon Peter. And it's Peter that pipes up in the next verse. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him. It's like, hey, psst, psst, hey, hey son of thunder, John, uh, fine. Disciple that Jesus loves, even though he loves us all. Do I have your attention? <laughs> okay. He beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. It's like, get, get, you're right next to him. I let you take pole position, okay? I'm on the other side of the triclinium for crying out loud. Or I'd ask him myself, but we got to keep this uh, under the table, so to speak. Ask him. Lean over. And sure enough, John does it. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Not, Lord, is it I. Now, it's very possible that both accounts are correct. And that Matthew and Mark focused on the first thing. Maybe that's what crossed their mind. Like, I couldn't possibly meet. What, Lord, is it I? But if it goes around and just everyone's just kind of saying that, does it then elevate and... That's got to be one of us. It, no, no, it is not I. I couldn't possibly do that. Then who, who could? And then again, leave it to good old impetuous Peter. I can't find out. And John asks. Now, here's why this is so important. And it never dawned on me until the moment it was most needed. 
That's usually how scriptural insight comes. Remember, Jesus doesn't multiply loaves and fishes for no reason. He only does it when people are hungry. Well, I was having a conversation with a friend in need. He was on the verge of a difficult divorce. And this friend of mine is a humble, good soul, not perfect, none of us are, but humility is one of his great gifts. And as he saw the reality of his family crumbling and his marriage dissolving, he was devastated. And as a humble soul, he took 100% of the blame. He was using that phrase, Lord, is it I, as a club, and he was beating himself with it. And unfortunately, in the situation he found himself in, his wife was more than happy to agree with him. Yeah, it is you. A hundred percent. Granted, this friend had made some mistakes. We all do. But he was at the point in this conversation with me that he was taking ownership of every single mistake. In other words, if husband and wife were sitting next to each other, only one was saying, Lord, is it I, and the other person was not saying, Lord, is I, simply saying, yes, it's him. And the problem with that is it's never, or I should say at least hardly, hardly ever, so completely one-sided as that. That's why it's important that all 12 apostles say, Lord, is it I? Because there will be a nod and a yes in everyone's direction, especially when it comes to conflict in marriage or personal relationships. In some kind of traffic accident, perhaps, yes, it was completely the other person's fault. But in interpersonal conflict, everyone must say, Lord, is it I? But unfortunately, that's the only thing this friend of mine was saying. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I realized there's an alternate account. Yeah, I, guilty as charged, like everybody else. I'd only ever focused on Matthew and Luke's altruism because it's the more noble of the two. But I shared with this friend, there's a second version. And in John's, it's not Lord is it I, it's Lord who is it. And if we can keep those two in tension and use them to prove a contrary here, we'll realize that in almost every situation, yes, we are part of the problem. But no, we are not the entire problem on our own. And for this friend's sake, yes, stay humble. And yes, realize your own blame. But do not take 100% of it. That is unhealthy. And it's unfair. It's inaccurate. It's untrue. Learn from your mistakes. Repent and move forward. But do not force yourself to carry a burden of blame that is entirely one-sided. The reality is different than that. If that is a lesson that you needed, then I'm grateful I was in a situation when someone like you, who needed that same reassurance, that I was there and the Lord opened my mouth and filled it with something that had never crossed my mind before.
Keep both of these together, please. Now, the story continues. They're just shock and awe. And is it, is it me? Is it him? Who is this? And back to the Mark account in chapter 14. Go to verse 20. Where Jesus answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve. And again, that must have been the hardest thing for him to say. Someone that people receive in order to receive me. No, it's one of you twelve. One of you that dippeth with me in the dish. I mean, we're not just breaking bread. We're dipping it in the same sauce, so to speak. Even we don't do that, right? No, no, you dish it out into something else because you don't want to spread germs. No, they're spreading everything. They're sharing everything. They're dipping in the same dish. And then the Savior said, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Matthew says the same thing, by the way. And he adds in verse 25, Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Lord, is it I? Which was incredibly gutsy on his part. Because Jesus then said unto him, Thou hast said. Which seems so obvious. Shouldn't the others have picked up on that? Well, Judas, in some ways, what's he going to do? If everyone, it goes to all 11, Lord is it I, Lord is it I, Lord is it I, and it gets to him and he's like, I'm not, it couldn't possibly be me. Uh, Lord, who is it? Now he has to go along with it too. Jesus' response seems so clear. You said it. But the apostles, again, in disbelief that any one of their brethren could so betray him and them, are they just in such bewilderment that they can't accept that possibility? John's account shows their confusion. Verse 26 of chapter 13, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Can I be more clear? Well, then again, maybe he's doing the same thing for other people. If he's the servant of all, has he been dishing out, breaking bread, dishing out sop? Has he been dipping it for people left and right? I mean, he's, he washed all their feet. Has he been serving all their food? I don't know. But then John's account adds this. After the sop, Satan entered into him. It's not the only thing he digested in that moment. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest do quickly. And then this detail. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. So again, we have it clearly stated. They didn't get it. John himself, who was so quick to pass judgment on Judas after the fact, in the moment had no clue. In fact, they gave Judas the benefit of the doubt, as, as they were doing on the altruistic side of things, and said in verse 29 and 30, For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast. After all, this is John's account where the Passover isn't till tomorrow. And so, yeah, you're going to need a lot of materials to get together so that the feast is fully prepared. So, yeah, go out and buy some stuff, some last minute you know, dinner items. That was one possibility. Here's a second. Or that he should give something to the poor which is interesting, considering what we talked about with Mary and her sacrifice of the 300 pence worth of spikenard, that must have been something that Jesus did frequently. 
something that Judas did regularly since he's the one that was the treasurer holding the bag. Go give to the poor. That's kind of what Judas does. But then this last line, he then having received the sop went immediately out and it was night. Oh, those last four words show just what a literary gift John had. To give that kind of foreshadowing, to leave us with that sense of foreboding, oh yes, it's night, and there is a darkness afoot that is about to swallow up the light of the world, but not quite yet. With the pendulum swinging back and forth between darkness and light and pride and humility, we see another swing. And this one is a glorious burst of light before the darkness fully sets in. It's the light of the sacrament. And in this moment, oh, when the unleavened bread and the cups of wine come together, and Jesus takes these old ingredients and turns them into something marvelously new. How oh, he, what, what's about to happen is one of the greatest moments in the Last Supper. To the point that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's mind, it eclipses even the washing of the feet. Uh, since they don't mention it at all. Their focal point at the Last Supper is this magnificent moment. Now, like I said earlier, it's impossible to know exactly the chronology of when it happened. And was this before or after the washing of the feet? I've, I'm suggesting here that it's after, but we don't, I don't know for sure. One of the challenges here, too, or at least why people kind of get up in arms over the chronology and the controversy surrounding it, has to do with Judas. Because the question is, what was Judas present for? And, and what was he missing? What we just saw was Jesus saying, giving them the last, this last morsel of dinner, what you're going to do, go do it immediately. Go do it quickly. And he gets up and he takes off. And it was night. So from this moment on in the Last Supper, Judas is not present. Which begs the question, hmm, when did that occur in relation to the other things that happened? Now, because if we stick with John's account alone, and if we, if we trust his chronology, at least the, the washing of the feet, Judas does seem to be present for, okay? Because John's the one describing the washing of feet, and at the end of it is this prophecy of betrayal, and at the end of that is Judas takes off, okay? So he must have been there for it. The question is, did the washing of the feet come before or after the sacrament? If the sacrament came first, then Judas was present for both. If the sacrament came second, then Judas was present for the washing of feet, but not present for the sacrament. And for a lot of people, that's a real issue. Like, would Jesus have washed Judas's feet? As I already discussed, I think yes. An act of love, an act of kindness, an act of service, something he was, he's always willing to do. If you'll change, I will cleanse you. If you'll repent, I will forgive. I promise. But if the sacrament came later 
and Judas was not present for it, that seems fitting to me as well. Because Jesus was always good at balancing, proving another contrary, between the worth of souls and the sanctity of the sacraments. Judas, your soul is so worth, is worth so much to me, I'll wash your feet. But the sacrament is so sacred that I cannot permit you to partake of it. You see the same thing in 3 Nephi as Jesus is working with the, the disciples there in, in Bountiful among the Nephites to balance the worth of souls and the sanctity of the sacraments. Let them come to church, no matter how unworthy they are, but protect the sacrament because they are eating damnation to their souls if they partake unworthily. If they, and by unworthily, I mean they have no deep desire to truly commune with me. No one's going to take it perfectly. But with worthy purposes. Now, for that reason, I do believe Judas is now gone. And the sacrament can now proceed as planned with 12, Jesus and 11 apostles, worthy to partake in a true communion. We will start with Luke's account here. We will owe the next little segment to Matthew, Mark, and Luke collectively, since John, like I said, hinted at it in the Bread of Life discourse, but doesn't talk about it here. We're going to start with Luke's account, which is bare bones. It's the simplest, most straightforward. To that skeleton, we'll then add, we'll focus on Mark, since Mark was most likely the first of the three gospels, first of the four gospels written. So if, if, Matt, if Luke is in some ways stripping things away to just give us a bare bones account of the sacrament, then we'll grow up a little into the Mark original, and then we'll grow beyond that to what Matthew adds to, to add to what Mark gave him. Okay, if we, if we can understand that order of things. So Luke 22, verse 16, is where we'll begin. This is right after that double desire of how desperately the Lord longs to partake of this Passover with them. And right on the heels of that, he says, For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof. In other words, this is the last supper. But not the last entirely. I will not eat any more thereof, until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. <laughs> that is, our next feast together will be the marriage supper of the king's son. Remember that parable? <laughs> I hope you're not busy on your farm or test driving your oxen. When I call for that one, you better come running. Because, yeah, that's a feast not to be forgotten. Next, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, if we get technical, that's still not the, the wine of the sacrament. You see, throughout a Passover meal, there were typically several times, different moments in the, in the ritual that you would partake of wine. Another sip here and another drink there and so on. This is a preliminary one because he's starting with, with, water, with, excuse me, with wine there. Next, he'll shift to bread, and then he'll talk about wine again. There has been some controversy throughout Christian history of what you're supposed to do first. Do you take the bread first or the wine first in the Eucharist or the sacrament? And those who lean towards wine first are using Luke as their example. Okay? But this does just seem to be a preliminary drink. But I do love what he's saying here. This 
is going to be the you go you guys go ahead and drink it. I'm not going to until that that wedding feast. I I'm going to stay completely focused on the task at hand and not partake of any wine until then. That will be a a feast and celebration worth waiting for. It's actually talked about in section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and we refer to it as a great last sacrament meeting at Adam on Diamond, which we talked a little bit about last week with Signs of the Times and the Second Coming. But speaking of Second Coming, look at section 27, verse 5. Behold, this is wisdom in me, the Lord says, wherefore marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. And then he lists Oh, the guest list, <laughs> all these incredible ancient worthies that would join him for that great final sacrament meeting. He lists Moroni and Elias and John the Baptist and Elijah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Adam, Peter, James, and John are included. So from Last Supper to Next Supper, oh, they're all there. Best of all, verse 14, and also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world which I guess leaves room around the table for you and me. If we'll simply come out of the world, overcome it, not be deceived by it, not be caught up in it, then we'll hear the Lord's voice. I'm not going to plow my ox or check my field. I'm going to come running with lamps and vessels filled with oil because it's it's party time. <laughs> it's the banquet. It's the feast. And the Lord will once again partake of the fruit of the vine with his beloved disciples. One other thing that struck me, and I'd never thought of this before, but as I was pondering what the Lord is saying here, I'm not going to partake of the fruit of the vine until I come again. So there will be a, a specific period, a temporary time, It'll be long. I mean, we're, we're pushing two, over 2,000 years now, right? Uh, but it will be a temporary time where I don't partake of those things. I mean, earlier in his ministry, he was called out for partaking of such things as wine. Remember? Like, how come John fasts and you feast? How come John won't partake of, of wine, but you do? And we already talked about that, and the Lord explains himself. But in John's case, it's because he was a Nazarite. And from his mother's womb... Set apart to be different. And when we go back to the Nazarite vows in, what was it, Numbers chapter 6? That's what a Nazarite is supposed to do. Be set apart for a certain time. Sometimes it's lifelong. Sometimes it's just temporary. It's like a mission. We're all disciples, but missionaries have higher standards to keep. And for that time period, they keep them. Then when they come home, they can listen to music and go on dates and watch movies and do those other kinds of things. I mean, stay worthy, but... It, you can live a, more, of a, more of a normal life. You got a taste of that higher standard. Well, it struck me as I was pondering this, in a way, what is the Lord saying here? Between now and my second coming, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine. In all intents and purposes, I will be partaking of a Nazarite vow instead. Because that Nazarite vow entails being set apart for a specific high and holy purpose. And what was Jesus' Nazarite vow? I'm about to atone 
I'm about to conquer death. I'm about to rise from the grave. And from that moment until the moment of my second coming. As a Nazarite, I will be dedicated to the service of God in applying my atoning blood to everyone who ever needs it. To meet their needs. To mourn in their mourning. To descend to spend time with them, now that I've acquired my perfect empathy, I will be able to help them. That's my mission. Not just what I'm about to do in the next few days, but what I'll be doing every day thereafter until I come again. I love thinking of Christ continuing his Nazarite vow as we speak for our sake and choosing to continue to live by a higher standard, choosing, and how, how do you get higher than perfection already? It's sinlessness. He somehow does. How do you focus even more oh, this laser-like on our needs? That's what his atonement was for. And he is offering his atonement to us every step of our way. Now, verse 19, the Luke account continues. And he took bread and gave thanks. Now, pause there. He gave thanks for this bread, even knowing that it represented his own broken body. We already saw in the previous verse, when he took the cup, he gave thanks for that as well. And as we'll see later, that cup was as bitter as bitter can be. It was so bitter that Jesus pled three times with the Father, please take it away from me. And yet here he is expressing gratitude for the chance to drain it to the dregs. Thank you, Father, for the chance to do something for you and for my, my brothers and sisters that is an infinite and eternal act of love, as bitter and brutal as it will be to partake of it. I thank thee for these elements. Now, after thanking God for the bread, it says that he break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. And notice the word given, not taken. Jesus freely offered himself as a selfless sacrifice. And so it is bread given to you, representing a body given for you. He then says, This do in remembrance of me. And then after the bread, next we see the wine. Likewise, also the cup after supper. That's why I mentioned that there was a cup before. Now there's a cup after. And this seems to be the sacramental one. This cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So a broken body, shed blood, it's all for you. In fact, that to me is my... The, the, the most meaningful phrase to me in the sacrament prayer over the water is when we are told to do this in remembrance of the blood of thy son, here's the phrase, which was shed for them. That's what makes the sacrament personal to me. Blood that was shed for me. I've said this before, but there are times where I'll even look across the tray and look for the cup with the most water in it, realizing just what Jesus did for me, personally, individually, specifically, 
on my behalf. That's what Jesus is doing for them. And it's a cup of New Testament. Now, when we think New Testament, we think this book of Scripture we've been studying all year. But Testament is better translated covenant. The Hebrew Bible was an old covenant. The Christian New Testament is a new covenant. It's all under the big umbrella of the new and everlasting covenant. So old and new, it's all the same to him. The covenant was the one he made with us in premortality to send us down to earth, to offer us agency, to promise us a, a savior so that we could then return home to be with God and more like God. That's the big plan. That's the big picture. And that's the big promise. That's God's word. And God's word was made flesh so we could see his promise taking place right in front of us. The Old Testament was not destroyed. It was fulfilled in a new testament. The old covenant is still in force. It's been renewed in the new covenant, and it's made, and that new covenant has made everything new. It's a new heaven and a new earth that the Lord is promising us. It's a new sacrifice, a new body, a new blood. The body will no longer be that of a sacrificial animal. The body now is that of Jesus. And now the body of the church, the body of Christ, church members, people for whom Christ has offered his body, now need to offer him our bodies as well. That's the new sacrifice. That's our new covenant. How about the blood? No longer the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus Christ. And then our blood and our sweat and our tears as we try to invite people to come unto him. This is something new. Jeremiah said that there would be a new covenant and a new heart that the Lord would place in all of us. And the sacrament is our chance to keep that new heart ticking. Remember what Elder Renlund taught once, that the mighty change of heart is a heart transplant. And he's a cardiologist. He knows how those go. He said, unfortunately, the heart, excuse me, the body tends to know when something from outside it has been introduced and has all kinds of immunoresponse to reject this foreign material. I want the old heart back. I want me in all my natural man glory. And so Elder Renlund said, no wonder a human heart transplant recipient has to take medication for the rest of their life to almost trick the body into allowing the new heart to remain. He said, it's a major surgery to have a heart transplant. The, a major transformation to be made new in Christ and have a mighty change in our hearts. No wonder then we need to have <laughs> large space and upper priorities, plenty of furnished and prepared things to maintain the change. The scriptures are our medicine. The sacrament is our medicine. That's what I love about this one. To partake of the bread and, and water anew week after week so that our heart can remain new as part of this new covenant that Christ has made. Now there's one other detail to wrestle with here. And then we'll turn to Mark and Matthew to continue the wrestle. And it's the question that rises in, in many, uh, well, throughout Christian history. 
is what did Jesus mean by this is my body? And what did he mean by this do in remembrance of me? There are some who lean in the direction of this is my body and take it literally and say, no, that's what he's saying. This is it. They draw back on John chapter 6. You've got to eat my body and drink my blood or you have no part in me. And that is where the doctrine of transubstantiation comes from. Substantiation is the substance. Trans is change or a cross. And so transubstantiation means you take the substance of bread or of wine and it transforms into the body and blood of Jesus, literally. It won't look different, but its essence has changed. And you are now literally partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation. And that's why Catholicism particularly takes the Eucharist so seriously. There are even rules about what to do with whatever wine is left over in the cup after the uh, communicants have participated in it. What do you do with any leftover wafers? What do you do with crumbs of the wafer that might have, might have fallen on the ground, since that's the body of Christ now? What do you do if oh, a, a mouse comes out of its hole and eats a crumb from the wafer? You, you understand how far this can go. And this is something that has... has p- please don't think less of anyone who believes that. Based on a literal interpretation of this passage and a belief in the doctrine of transubstantiation, no wonder, the fact that they have all these rules upon rules upon rules should let us know, wow, do I take the sacrament that seriously? We don't believe in transubstantiation. We don't believe that it's literally the body and blood. Uh, After the sacrament is over, the bread is now just bread if no one partook of it. And you can dispose of it in any way. But uh, sometimes when I see the teachers cleaning up the sacrament and just taking the bread and dumping it unceremoniously in the trash or just throwing it out the, the door of the chapel so the birds can, can eat it, ah, oh, there's a part of me that wonders, can we take things a little bit more carefully and seriously and reverently? But no, we don't believe in transubstantiation. We lean in the direction of the opposite phrase, this do in remembrance of me. And that the substance is still bread, it's still water, it's still wine. But it's a token that can then point me to a deeper, higher and holier reality. You see how we're wrestling between these two? Again, it's a wrestle that goes on. But I will say something about the doctrine of transubstantiation. In a way, it's true. A certain substance does transform. But it's not the bread and water that changes. We do. It's not the bread and water that turns into Jesus. It's we who slowly transform to be more like him, week by week, sacrament by sacrament. Along those lines, then I'm, I wholeheartedly believe in transubstantiation. Because my years of partaking of the sacrament, when I do it worthily and reverently and seriously, 
worshipfully, I do change. And I change to be more like Jesus. Well, from the Mark account of all of this, chapter 14, verse 22, let's see his take. As they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So they've already been eating the Passover meal, but at some specific moment in it, Jesus takes some more of this unleavened bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. This is my body. Now there's a JST of this, and there's a lot of JST throughout this because, again, not only did Matthew, Mark, and Luke all weigh in on the sacrament, Jesus emphasized it in 3 Nephi. Joseph went over it with a fine-tooth comb in the inspired version. We've got to get this right. Moroni, including the sacrament prayers, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 20, repeating those sacrament prayers. Bishops looking over at, at priests and priests looking nervously back. Are we getting this right? We need to slowly, carefully, ponderously approach the sacrament. And so here, JST, Mark 14, 21. Behold, this is for you to do in remembrance of my body. And so you see it clear. We're moving away from the, this is my body, toward the, this is done in remembrance of my body. We're shifting from a literal transubstantiation approach to a symbolic token approach. And then the inspired version continues. For as oft as you do this, you will remember this hour that I was with you. Which I love. I think too often when we're... Well, here's the question. What do we think about? It's a moment of total silence during sacrament. We sing a hymn beforehand, but there's no music playing in the background. There's no mood music. There's no change in lighting. So, other churches do so much to try to amplify the environment that takes place during the participation in the, the sacrament, in the Eucharist. And we don't. In some ways, we are paying our members the compliment of believing that they can connect with God without any outside assistance. It's bare bones in our worship service to the point that others might be surprised, those of other faiths might be surprised at how Spartan our sacrament service really is. What do, what do you think about during that time? Uh, those with little kids, you don't, you're excused. You don't have to answer. That's hard enough. <laughs> but for the rest of us, what do we ponder? What do we, what do we do with that sacred time? I think often we're taught, think about Jesus. And since this is his body and this is his blood, we specifically think about Gethsemane and Calvary. And, and we think about the suffering Savior. And that's good. We should. But... We don't have to be limited to that. And what I love about the JST of Mark 14, 21, it's not just remember the hours that I'm about to spend for you. It's remember this hour that I spent with you. And that opens up a world of possibilities for us to ponder during the sacrament. I don't only think about what Jesus did for me in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary. I think about times I've spent with him from childhood on. I try to think back to sacred experiences where he has been so alive and well in my life.
I try to think of miracles performed and blessings offered and how times that he has spoken to me through the words of scripture. I have a lifetime of memories and there's something to be said for always remembering him, not in isolation from us, but in association with us. That's actually what, the way Jesus teaches it to the Nephites in 3 Nephi. In 3 Nephi chapter 18, verse 7, after instituting the sacrament among the Nephites, this shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. So it's not just my body that was broken for you. It's my body that I've shown to you in this glorious, perfected, resurrected state. It's the time we spent together. So as you think about the bread, think about the bread of life, not just the bread of his death. And the times that he has lived with you and in you, and you've lived into him. Those are glorious things that we can ponder during the sacrament. Now, the Matthew version of that, we're still just with the bread. We're, we're going slowly through all of this. Matthew's version of what Jesus says about the bread is found in 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Basically identical to Mark's account. But when Joseph turned there, he got a deeper JST than what he got in the Mark version. It's interesting. This is JST Matthew 26, verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and break it and blessed it. Now, you've got to pay attention to that. He reversed the order there, which is interesting. So far, it's always been he blessed it and then he break it. Here, under inspiration, it was like, nope, we've got to, we've got to break it first. And then we bless it. And that's how the priests do it in administering the sacrament in our day. There's something about Jesus being willing to have his body broken so that after that, thereby, because of that fact, he can now be a blessing of living bread of life, broken bread ever after. Broken first, blessed second. Then Jesus says, take, eat, this is in remembrance of my body, which I give a ransom for you. So like we've already seen, in basically every instance of the JST, it shifts the center of gravity away from literalism into symbolism, away from transubstantiation into token. Remember, always remember him. And then, after the blessing of the bread, the blessing of the wine. Go back to Mark for this one. Mark 14, 23 to 25. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, and again, that's so powerful, knowing its bitterness, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So a lot of parallels to what we read earlier in Luke. But notice the JST of this passage. JST Mark 22, verse 23 and 24. He said unto them, This is in remembrance of my blood. Again, the shift in that direction. Which is shed for many. And the New Testament which I give unto you, for of me ye shall bear record unto all the world. 
And as oft as ye do this ordinance, ye shall remember me in this hour that I was with you and drank with you of this cup, even the last time in my ministry. At least the last time in his mortal ministry, that is. Think about those additions. Remember me in this hour. This is the light before the darkness. This is, these are the good times before the bad. We'll see this next week and the week after. This is what John focuses on. A hugely disproportionate fraction of his gospel focuses on the Last Supper and the, dis- the discourse, this farewell discourse Jesus gives on the way from Upper Room to Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we'll talk more about why when we get there in a, in a week or two. But to remember these good times, this last communal meal, remember that. This is our last time together. And by remembering it, you're also bearing witness of it. There's something about that bearing testimony of these kinds of experiences. And by partaking of the sacrament, we are promising to stand as a witness of him. Not only remembering him ourselves, but trying to get other people to remember him too. That's, a part, that's part of what we do. But notice also what he said. This is in remembrance of my blood which was shed for many. Now that's odd. Shed for them is personal and specific. I love that. Shed for all would seem to be the other reality. That yeah, it's for me specifically, but it's also for all universally. Because isn't his atonement infinite, eternal? Isn't it meant for all? Yes, definitely. But when he says it was shed for many, which means not all, How do you wrestle with that? Well, in some ways, yes, it was shed for all. But since not all will partake of the sacrament and all that it entails, then it's only efficacious for those who do. Oh, I pray that that's many. But because of agency, sadly, no, that's not all. Some will choose not to partake. Now, Matthew his account of the blessing on the wine is almost identical to Mark's. Perhaps you're thinking, can we finish this? We're almost done, right? Yes, we're almost done. But this is worth slowing down for and looking at every person's insight. Week after week, sacrament after sacrament. So Matthew 26, verse 27, he took the cup and gave thanks Are we equally grateful when we receive it? And he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. Now, that's a tough phrase because all, what does that refer to? The it of the cup or the ye of the the apostles? Well, you look at other translations and it's not drink all the cup. He's not saying drink the entire thing. Only he could do that, drinking to the dregs of the bitter cup. What he is saying is you all should drink of it. This is the all y'all popular in the South, okay? So drink all y'all of this cup. I want it to be for everyone. I want this to be a universal, infinite atonement. It is. I just need people to partake of it seriously. He goes on, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Again, repetition we've seen elsewhere. But then the JST. For this is in remembrance of my blood of the New Testament. Again, moving from transubstantiation to token remembrance. This is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for as many as shall believe on my name for the remission of their sins. This goes back to the ransom paid through the body. Now the remission offered through the blood, it's their sins, it's shed for them, it's as many as shall believe. That's, that's where I get this idea of many versus all. It's, it's only for as many as believe. Otherwise, the proffered gift is never accepted. He then ends, And I give unto you a commandment that ye shall observe to do the things which ye have seen me do, and bear record of me, even unto the end. Do what I am doing. Let the sacrament be an eternal ordinance. Remember me. Bear record of me. That's a great detail. It's repeated in 3 Nephi also. Chapter 18, verse 7, It shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. A testimony. It's beautiful to think on fast and testimony meeting. The people who go up and take the stand, that's actually the second testimony they've borne that day. Everyone who partakes of the sacrament has already borne it first. Bearing witness, testimony. We remember him. We know what he's done for us. We know what he still does for us. And we try to hold on to every memory. With that, the Last Supper has essentially come to an end. Again, pick your order. You can change the chronology, I suppose, since we don't know for sure exactly how it all played out. In the John version, there's actually quite a bit left of the Last Supper. Because him leaving to go to the garden doesn't come until the end of chapter 14. So we st- and next week we'll ch- study chapter 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. 15, 16, 17 are obviously on the way to the garden. But 14 seems to be still back at the upper room. So keep that in mind next week when we, when we keep them all together. So yes, there may have been a considerable amount left of, for Jesus to teach during that, that supper. But for our sake uh, here, we are going to postpone that part for next week, keep it all in the, in the farewell discourse, and finish today's lesson this week with, with two last details. One that we'll get from the end of John 13, and the other that we'll borrow from Matthew and Mark, who have an identical recollection of a beautiful moment that ended the Last Supper officially before they finally left and went to a garden of Gethsemane. Now, for this first one, go to John 13 and start in verse 31. Picking up where John left off, this is as soon as Judas has left. Okay, Before the sacrament, after the sacrament, ah, most likely before. He's now gone, though, and John continues his narrative. Therefore, when he, Judas, was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. There's a lot of glorification going on in those two verses. 
And it's right on the heels of Judas leaving. So on the heels of, and it was night. Oh, and there was still light here in the upper room. You almost get a tangible sense of the mood lifting. And just the tension in the room settling. And people no longer so concerned and worried of like, who's going to do this? Jesus, Judas is gone and Jesus just kind of snaps back into joy and relief and glory that God is about to glorify me as I'm about to glorify God. And through that, he's going to glorify everyone. <laughs> There's something magnificent here. And with that in mind, he then gives these apostles a magnificent new commandment to go, to go along with his new covenant. Very famous, John 13, verse 33 through 35. Little children. And I love that he calls them that. He's the one that's lowered himself to be their servants. But in reality, oh, they're little kids compared to him. And he's okay with that. He loves little children, right? <laughs> little children, yet a little while, I am with you. And pause there and let that sink in. My sweet young friends, this is it. This is our last supper. This is, there's only a little while that I'll, that I'll remain with you. And I know how devastating that is to you. That's why he says next, you shall seek me. You'll do it desperately. With desire, you will desire to be with me again. But it can't be. So he says, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. Now, if you leave the period there and end the verse right there, then what Jesus is saying is a repetition of what he said before. I told the Jews, and I'll tell you now, where I go, you cannot come. And that's an accurate way to read that, that passage. He had said that to the Jews. Remember when they were confused? Like, what, is he going to go to the Gentiles? No, I'm going to my father. You'll want to be there. You can't come there yet. And you can't come there unless you change your ways. And do things my way. He's saying, he's repeating the same thing to the apostles here. I said it then, I say, so now I say to you. But there's a part of me that wants to put the period earlier, change that last period to a comma, and include the last line of that verse as the first line of the next. I mean, either way, they're meant to flow together. But read it in that way, and what's he saying? It's not just a matter of, hey, I've, I told them I'd leave and you couldn't come and I'm saying the same thing to you. Well, pause a little earlier and read it this way. Whither I go, ye cannot come. So, now I say to you, comma, quotation mark, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, on the one hand, I don't think we have to go to the lengths of changing quotation marks and, and so on. It all is one big flowing line. I'm leaving. You can't come. I said that to the Jews. I'm saying that to you. But what I'm also saying to you is that you've got to learn to love each other. In fact, you've got to learn to love each other the way I love you. 
Now that second verse stands on its own in a magnificent way. That's how we do it when we sing love one another in the hymn book, right? As I have loved you, love one another. This new commandment, love one another. By this shall men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. It's one of the shortest hymns in our hymn book and one of the best. It encapsulates so concisely, so powerfully, what Jesus intends for us, but it also, in context, contains what he hopes we'll offer one another. This is why I was careful to tie the previous verse to it. Here's why. What did he just told them? I'm not going to be with you anymore. And therefore, will you please love each other the way I've loved you? Because of all the things you're probably going to miss about our time together. Yeah, you'll probably miss the miracles, and you'll miss seeing incredible things, and you'll miss the teachings and story time with parables, and there's a lot you're going to miss. You're going to miss multiplied loaves and fishes. You're going to miss all kinds of things, but probably down deep when you think about it, the thing you'll miss most is knowing how deeply I love you. Have you ever been loved by someone so perfectly that when you lose them, you know no one will ever love you like that again? It's how my wife feels about her mom. She loves her dad. She loves her stepmom. She knows they both love her deeply. But the way my wife describes her birth mother, she, her gift was love. And whoever she was with, they felt like, and she heard this from friends and relatives and anyone who knew Barbara. They were the center of her universe when she was with them. And that's how my wife felt about her mom. That was 40 years ago when her mom died of leukemia, leaving a lost little eight-year-old, wondering, will anyone ever love me like that? Not even I can do that for her. There is a mom-shaped hole in her soul that has never been filled by anything else except the love of God. Then how do we provide the love of God to people, to people with holes in their hearts? Imagine that. Think Peter, James, John, Matthew, any one of these. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Who's going to love me like him? Who possibly could? That's what Jesus is asking for. Please be that for each other. Yes, be my hands to help. Be my voice to teach but be my heart to love because that's what people will be missing. Until I come back, please stand proxy for me and love and don't just love in your way. They'll know the difference. 
loving mind. Perfect, divine, self-sacrificing, selfless love. Even charity, which never faileth. That's the pure love of Christ. My beloved friends, I, I want to be more like that. I know I've got a long way to go. But if I want to be a true disciple, if I want people to recognize me as such, then that's my aim. That's what makes that last verse so powerful. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Not because you say, Lord, Lord. Anybody can do that. No, you've got to do more than that. Oh, okay, I'll do more. Well, anybody can do. Remember, we're back to the Sermon on the Mount now. But I've done all these things. Ah, but you never knew me. And I never really knew you. Or maybe another way to phrase it. Other people don't know me because they know you. If they know you and don't know me as a result, then that's not true discipleship. Because a disciple becomes a miniature of its master. That's the transubstantiation we're working on through the sacrament. Changing us, not changing bread and water. That's how people will tell. It will not come. How do you spot uh, a practicing Orthodox Jew? It's pretty easy. And I think it's beautiful that they want people to know. They're willing to stand out and stick out. It's amazing. How can you tell? How can you spot a practicing Muslim when the call to prayer comes over the loudspeakers? To me, it's beautiful too. How can you tell? How do you know that that's a practicing Sikh? There's beautiful external ways to determine someone's religious faith. And I'm all for it. But please understand, fellow Christians, that the way Christ himself described how someone would distinguish you, it's not a cross around your neck, nor a CTR ring on your finger. It's not rosary beads, but neither is it garment lions. It's not vestments on a priest, but neither is it a white shirt and tie on a bishopric member. No, how do you spot one? No matter what their specific denomination might be, love. Real love. The love that balances justice and mercy. The balance, the, the love that has your long-term as well as short-term interests at heart. The love like Jesus's. And my dream is to be distinguished along those lines. Because then and only then will I be a true disciple. Now it's perhaps fitting that this might take place at the end of the sacrament. When all is said and done, and this is the last thing he says before we, we head off in other directions. Then again, since John didn't mention the sacrament, we don't know, maybe this was before. And in a way, saying this right before the sacrament would have been perfectly appropriate too. In some ways, that's how they do it in other churches. Uh, as I've attended church in all kinds of different congregations, uh, what's beautiful in so many of them, they have what they call the passing of the peace. 
And that is preparatory before they participate in the Eucharist, or the sacrament as we call it. And the passing of the peace is typically standing up. The pastor or the, the priest in charge will ask people to stand and turn around and meet the people all around you. Shake hands. Express, exchange greetings. Best of all, exchange peace. That's what they call it, the passing of the peace. And I remember my first time, I was kind of awkward. I'm like, I'm not even one of you people. Ah, what the heck? I guess I am. And shaking hands and peace be unto you. Or may the Lord's peace be with you. Those were sacred experiences. And just reaching out to strangers that all of a sudden didn't feel like strangers. To feel a connection to them, a communion with them right before we took communion with God. In some ways, this is the second great commandment, prep, preparing us for the first great commandment. Remember when Jesus says, if you have a gift to give to the altar, great, bring it to the altar. But if you're there and you realize, oh, I'm not very good with my neighbors and my friends. My brothers have something against me. Uh, my failure to live the second great commandment is getting in the way of my ability to truly connect with God through the first great commandment. So let me leave my gift here since that still needs to be my priority. I'm not just going to go take it home and then forget about God. No, my priority is God. First, great commandment first. But to really live it, I've got to stop sitting against the second great commandment. So let me go and reconcile with my brother, and then I'll be right back. And in a way, if we place these words before the sacrament instead of after them, if we have them establishing peace with one another, and loving each other as Jesus loves them, oh, there's no better way to now be prepared to fully become one with God. Zion, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, true unity there. We've got to build that if we ever hope for the Lord to return and bring His Zion from above. Make sense? Beautiful here. When I was at a student at Divinity School, every week, at, at Vanderbilt, they had an interdenominational worship service. They were awesome. I mean, you had people who were getting PhDs in homiletics, which is the study of preaching, and they'd come and practice during these, these uh, non-denominational services. They were amazing. Like, man, preach, brother. Preach, sister. Uh, we had, there were people getting PhDs in liturgics, which is the study of ritual. And so for them to be able to come and organize worship service, this was especially as a Latter-day Saint, where we all just do it ourselves, unprofessionally, to go have it done by people that were getting doctorates in it, that was pretty impressive stuff. I loved going. Part of me is just because I have an ecumenical heart, uh, and I have a lot of holy envy, and I see the good that is done uh, by God through His children, regardless of specific denominations. I love smelling flowers in other people's gardens. <laughs> They're beautiful. It sparks in me a desire to plant more carefully myself, pull out a few of my weeds. <laughs> but I remember going and just being moved every week. I wasn't doing it because it was required. It wasn't. The Divinity School was much larger than what could fit in the little room where we had the non-denominational service. But there were regulars, and we'd come and just carve out time in a busy week of graduate school to just worship. It wasn't an upper room. It was in the basement of the Divinity School. But 
it was upper for us. And so we went. And part of it every week was passing the peace. I'm grateful to have been able to reach out to Christian classmates and Jewish classmates and Muslim classmates, people of so many different religions and Christian denominations, just good people trying to make a good difference in the world. And just to shake hands and give them my best and offer them the Lord's peace was a sweet experience. My fellow Latter-day Saints, we don't do this very well. We certainly don't do it very well with people of other faiths. But sadly, in many instances, we don't even do a very good job of it with each other. <laughs> My stake president in Tennessee was a convert. Grew up, grew up a good old Southern evangelical Christian. And when he would go <laughs> to his family's uh, congregations, when they would invite him for certain family, different kinds of things, he would be reminded about the passing of the peace and reaching out and fellowshipping with one another before they partook of the sacrament. And one time in state conference, he asked us to do the same. He said, I know it's going to be awkward for you, Latter-day Saints. Stand up. Meet the people around you. Sometimes he'd do it and say, at the end of this meeting, you're not allowed to leave the chapel until you've met at least two people you didn't know before. And yeah, that might feel a little contrived to begin with, but please, please, get into the spirit of it. And it was beautiful the times that we did. When I was, this was shocking to me. My advisor at the time at Vanderbilt was a Latter-day Saint, amazing historian. And the dean of the, of the Divinity School, incredible historian himself, uh, was a Presbyterian. And at one point, when I was finishing a second master's and, and beginning to do my application for the PhD, my advisor said to me, you know, the dean is, has noticed that you come to the non-denominational worship service. He's really impressed. In fact, he was really surprised. And that's what impressed him. And I remember at first thinking, first of all, that he noticed it was never my intent. Is that, I hope he doesn't think that's why I went. Like I'm trying to buddy-buddy up or, you know, hey, look at me, look at me. I, I'm... I'm cool with people of other faiths. I hope you let the Latter-day Saint come back for, for a PhD. No, I was not doing it to be seen of man. But what hurt me the most is when a fellow Latter-day Saint told me that a Presbyterian was surprised that a Latter-day Saint would want to worship with people outside our religious community. And I thought, shame on us. Some of it is justifiable. We've been picked on for 200 years. But can we get past our martyr complex? Can we get past our isolationism? And look around and see the hand of God in the lives of his children everywhere. That's part of loving them the way he does and not withholding his love until they find the fullness. No, little children, he loves us all every step of the way. Oh, I pray that we can pass the peace. I pray that we can look around with love 
and especially as we prepare to partake of the sacrament, to connect vertically. Maybe we get to church early enough. Or maybe we just spend the week between sacrament outside of ourselves enough that we can connect to fellow Christians all around us, especially fellow ward members, so that when we partake of the sacrament, it's also a true communion. Latter-day Saints are supposed to be known for community building. We can be. We should be. But we can do better. And then one last detail. The last thing we'll see before we leave this upper room and begin our downward descent to the Kidron Valley and the Garden of Gethsemane that was there. According to Matthew and Mark, identical language in these two verses, it says that when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Which means as far as Matthew and Mark were concerned, the last thing they did before turning their attention from light to darkness, from association with each other, to an agonizing aloneness in the garden below, the last thing Jesus wanted to do with his closest 11 apostles was to sing a hymn. There is something profound about the power of music for so many reasons. It resonates literally in different ways. Unlike sight, where we have to fix our eyes on a specific scripture, for example, sound can come to us from every direction and we can be fully immersed in it in ways that sight simply doesn't allow. We usually give eyes pride of place over ears, but there are things the ear can do that the eye simply can't. There's something about the vibration of sound that we can feel that resonance. There's something about hymns because on the one hand, there is perfect unison when it comes to language. It's the only time in church that we are saying the same thing. And along with that unison, there is a harmony, literally. As people, it's a, music is such a beautiful combination, proving of contraries, between unity and diversity between melody and harmony. And to get outside yourself, that not to care about what people think about what you sound like, but just you care more about what the Lord is hearing. And Jesus listening can hear the songs I cannot sing. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, the Lord says, and will be answered with a blessing upon their heads. The Lord rejoices in the song of the heart. He didn't even say song of the mouth. <laughs> as long as it comes from the heart, it doesn't matter what it sounds like. Now some scholars have wondered, what hymn could that have been? What would they have sung in that all-important moment? Some have suggested that it was perhaps one of the so-called Hallel hymns. Those are the ones that go from Psalm 113 to 118. Again, the Psalms is the Israelite hymn book. So most likely it was a psalm that he was singing. He already quoted the 41st Psalm earlier that night. Uh, tomorrow at the cross, on the cross, he will quote the 22nd Psalm. Jesus knew the Psalms and loved them. Hallel is praise. Hallelujah is praise the Lord. And so Psalm 113 to 118, amazing Psalms of praise. Perhaps they were 
praising the Lord along those lines. Other scholars have suggested, well, maybe it was Psalm 136. Rather than a psalm of praise, a deep psalm of thanksgiving. Psalm 136 is a beautiful one. There's 26 verses, and in them, the first half of every verse tells a story when you connect them. It tells the story of creation and oh, deliverance from bondage in Egypt. It'd be a great psalm to sing at Passover. And their entry into the, a new land of promise. Yeah, Psalm 136 was a, sounds like a good one. And wait, it's only the first half of every verse that strings together to tell that story? Well, what's the second half? Well, that's the beauty. It's almost a call and response where one, maybe the cantor is singing the story and then the congregation responds after every line, for his mercy endureth forever. And for them, line after line, step after step of the story, that's another example of the Lord's tender mercies. His kindness, his compassion, his perfect everlasting love. And it endures forever. Through a final Passover, through a last supper, onto a first communion, far beyond to a second coming sacrament meeting, where we'll feast again with the coming of the king's son. So many possibilities. We Latter-day Saints, with our own current hymn book, take your pick. That'd be an interesting thing to ponder or discuss together. If you were at your last supper with Jesus, what hymn would you want to sing at its close? Sing we now at parting? That's the one Elder Maxwell used to give his final testimony by way of book. A poor wayfaring man of grief. That was the one for Joseph and Hiram in Carthage. Come, come ye saints. Oh, and should we die before our journey's through? There's so many incredible ones. How great thou art. I know that my Redeemer lives. Any and every one of the sacrament hymns. An Easter hymn, knowing the time of year. Oh, love one another. I mean, in essence, they just said it. We can sing it. Well, when all is said and done, I've, I've got one I'm pretty sure was the right one. I think in that concluding moment of the Last Supper, the apostles and their Lord saying what we have in our book as hymn number 182. We'll sing all hail to Jesus' name. Oh, I guess it's a praise psalm. Maybe it's one of those in the Hallel. Now you're thinking, wait, 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 what, why? Why would you pick that one, hymn 182? Well, it's because of the second verse. I don't think that hymn 182 was the song Jesus sang. But it does tell us the song he actually sung. Second verse. He passed the portals of the grave. Salvation was his song. He called upon the sin-bound soul to join the heavenly throng. And that's a throng I do want to join. That's a song that I can't sing. Only Jesus could. But he sang it. He sang 
salvation in every note. Salvation is the melody of the Messiah. And as he sings it, we do join in the chorus that his mercy endureth forever as a result of what he was about to do. I testify of Jesus. I'm grateful for his crown of liquid love. I'm grateful for the washing of my dirty feet. I'm grateful for a body broken and blood shed for me. And I testify, like I do every Sunday when I partake of the sacrament. May I give voice to what I am bearing witness of when I partake. That Jesus is the Christ. That he is worth our loyalty, not deserving of our betrayal. I pray that we may eat bread with him and stop lifting up the heel against him. That we will simply come unto Christ because we love him. And because we love him, we love everyone else with that same perfect love with which he loves them.